Thank you so much, um, and thanks to those who've come to join us today. We're a, a small but mighty group, right? Um, if anybody, we won't make you, but if you want to come closer, you're welcome to come a little bit closer. You feel very far away from up here. It might also get warmer for us, like the body heat, you know, if we're all in one area. So um, thank you for the introduction. My name is Heidi Gorniak, and um, uh, she already said my title, so I don't need to repeat that. Um, and I'll let Katie introduce herself when she comes over here. But the Food Trust is a nonprofit. We are based in Philadelphia. Um, and we work on access, education, affordability, and advocacy. Um, and a lot of our work that we're doing is through SNAP-Ed. Um, so we're really excited to be here to present with you guys today. Um, this is new for us, this dialogue now, so we're gonna try to make it as dialogue-y as possible. We have a ton of resources in here, um, farm to, or all around farm to school. This is something that we do a lot of work around. And I do wanna share just one tiny note that when I say farm to school, I am saying farm to school and early childhood. So this is also preschool setting if you work in early, early childhood. I'm just using the kind of broader term farm to school, but I mean both when I say that. Um, let's see what else. So we're going to walk through a ton of resources today to really introduce the broad scope of work that's happening across the country. You might even see your state highlighted in here uh, around farm to school. And then towards the end, we're going to spend some time dialoguing because um, that is the title. And there's so much expertise here in the room that we want to have some time to kind of get to know each other and talk about some um, kind of next steps. So diving in. Our, oh, our objectives are, uh, we're going to be listing the core elements of farm to school initiatives and the benefits in case you are brand new to farm to school. We're going to walk away with at least five new ideas for creating connections between farmers and schools to support farm to school initiatives. Identify best practices for implementing farmer school connections that support local food procurement and agriculture education, and identify and access resources from other states to support farm to school initiatives. And we'll, we will make sure these resources are on whatever app or um, website they need to be so that all of the links that are in here, you have, um, are able to click on those later. So just a quick poll, um, and I'm not fancy, this is not a, a technology poll, but just a raise of hands, an old school, old school poll, of how many people already work with farm to school. Okay, okay, yeah, I like the little waves. Um, <laughs> 
Um, okay, good. That, that's very helpful. Um, for those who do, does anybody want to share what you do with Farm to School? You don't have to. I won't put anybody on the spot. Voice by choice. Okay, great. And where are you located? Uh, Arizona. Arizona. Thank you for sharing. Anybody else? All right. Okay. Well, well onwards then. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Jump in, Katie. And what state are you in? North Carolina. North Carolina. Great. I will say one thing that we have learned from our work is that many people are doing farm to school and don't even know it. So by the end, you might realize you are actually, you should have actually raised your hand, but we'll get there. Um, so for those who this is a newer concept, just a quick introduction to farm to school. So there's three main components to farm to school. One is procurement and that's purchasing local food for usually school meals and snacks. It could also be school taste tests. The second is school gardens. And then the third is education. So if you're doing you know, FNAP, if you're doing SNAP-Ed, or any other funded you know, nutrition education with students, that would fall under farm to school. So that's nutrition education and agriculture education. And we're gonna, like, we're gonna see a lot of examples that fall under these today. Uh, there's tons and tons of research and that show benefits of farm-to-school programs, um, incre increasing access to nutritious, high-quality local food, right? That's one that we automatically often think about. It enhances classroom education. We're going to see some examples of that. It increases financial opportunities, right? So for farmers, fishers, ranchers, um, it's putting more money into the local economy. And it's also fostering these relationships between growers and students and families so that they know the people who are growing their food, which is really neat, right? Um, and then there's a link here at the bottom. This is from the National Farm to School Network. They put out a amazing handout um, that is called Benefits of Farm to School Programs. It's most recently updated in 2020. I just used some of their quantitative data. We did a um, congressional briefing on Wednesday. It's very, very convincing data in there. So if you're looking for a resource around benefits to farm to school, I highly recommend um, pulling that one up. I think this is another really great resource um, and kind of way of thinking about farm to school. This is from Vermont Feed. I don't know, is anybody from Vermont? Vermont, okay. All right, I was gonna shout you out. Uh, but this is, uh, Vermont Feed has what they call, is it the three C's, right? So um, thinking about farm to school work very holistically. So cafeteria, we've talked a little bit about procurement, classroom, education, and then really bringing in that community piece, right? That's our farmers, that's our families, that's other um, organizations. So I think this is a, a really beautiful model and it's kind of how we're breaking out the presentation today.
So um, first we're gonna take a quick peek at food and agriculture education in the classroom. And we're gonna look at four examples here. One is food and nutrition education. Another is hands-on gardening and garden education, cooking and tasting activities, and then harvest of the month. Uh, so here this is uh, just two of probably hundreds of great resources that are out there if you're looking to do um, nutrition education. And I mean, I don't have to tell anybody in this room how many resources there are, but Harvest for Healthy Kids is an excellent curriculum for young students in teaching um, farm to school concepts. There's also a lot of team nutrition resources, Growing Healthy Habits, Grow It, Try It, Like It. There's so much out there. Um, but this is a new one that we're using in Pennsylvania, a lot of partners are using, and it is excellent. Um, so I highly recommend that. And then there's also tons of great books out there to teach about food and nutrition. We have, um, the Food Trust had put together a collection of multi multicultural book choices, and there is a link here if you wanted to see that list. Um, but that's also, I will say, slightly outdated because it's probably over five years old at this point and so much has come out recently um, around this topic. So just also encouraging that, that learning through reading stories. Um, and I will add one thing that we've been doing recently is we have an author um, that we're working really closely with, Stacy Woodson, who is in Philadelphia, um, who's been doing book readings for us of her own stories with the children, which is really impactful. And then this has come up a few times already during the conference, which I love, is this incorporation of, of farm to school nutrition education, um, agriculture education into school curriculum. Um, and I also love the idea of having food educators in each building. That would be amazing. Thank you, Jennifer, for that idea yesterday um, and all the work that she's doing to, to do that in DC. Um, and we also, um, in Pennsylvania, we have, through SNAP-Ed and FNAP, we do a lot of education in the classroom, uh, and we are also working with teachers and asking them to integrate it as much as possible. Absolutely, they have way too much on their plates, 100%. So we try to make that as easy as possible for them. I'm not gonna walk through all of these, but there's a lot of easy ways that they can touch on some of this stuff um, in what they already have to get done throughout the day. Um, and then gardening, sorry, just pulling up my notes here. Um, oh, you know what, I did wanna just share one quick example of this. This was done many years ago, but the School District of Philadelphia is involved in SNAP-Ed, and um, they knew that every morning the students had to do a writing prompt. So they had to write. As soon as they got into the classroom, there was a writing prompt up on the board. And so they had created all of these writing prompts for teachers around food and nutrition and provided them, and that was just a really easy way to get food and nutrition uh, conversations in each morning. So I like that example. Okay, back to gardening. Um, so gardening, hands-on experiential education. Um, this is kind of showing students how their food grows. They understand how to do it themselves. They're more connected to the food that they've grown, more likely to try it. Uh, I loved how Jennifer talked yesterday about that joy, um, especially that example of kind of reaching in for those sweet potatoes which I remember doing for my first time when, when I did that. And so there's just so many um, amazing memories that come from school gardening. It also incorporates physical activity, right? That's another benefit. 
And there's a lot of new research coming out around being in school gardens, having mental health benefits for students. So gardening, there's just, there's just so much that could be said for gardening. Cooking and tasting activities. So this is exposure to new foods, right? Having students try them. Um, and again, I'm, I'm gonna keep shouting out Jennifer. I loved her talk yesterday, or her comments yesterday on the panel, but she talked about you know, that role of being able to provide the opportunity for students in the school to try something multiple times, something they've never tried before, um, which is a, a unique opportunity, right? And it takes a lot of time for students to, to understand if, or um, figure out if they like something. Um, so I think that's a great opportunity for us to do in schools with farm to school programming and um, making that a very positive experience, right? So we never force children to taste anything. Um, we're always making that a very positive experience. Um, and then, you know, often it's the one thing they'll remember from our lessons. So it's lasting impact. And, and then cooking activities, so obviously, you know, young students were, were maybe not doing a full cooking, but they're chopping, they're, you know, ripping, things like that, but they're developing life skills that they're going to be using later in life. And then also in the classroom, a lot of states have what's called harvest of the month. Has anybody ever heard of harvest of the month in their state? Okay, got a lot of people. So this is really featuring a fruit or vegetable, typically a fruit or vegetable, um, every month based on seasonality. Uh, it's really sharing about the benefits of those foods. Sometimes it's incorporated into school meals. Sometimes it's a, a uh, taste test for students in the classroom, but it's really kind of zoning in and focusing on one food each month to get that excitement up. Um, and there are tons and tons of resources online to support that and make sure that there's education happening in the classroom also um, to make sure that the students are learning more about that fruit or vegetable uh, and how it grows. Okay, so I'm going to pass it over to Katie, who's going to Take us to the next category. And then just curious, um, based on anything that Heidi just shared, for anyone who didn't raise their hand at the beginning, saying they didn't do any farm to school, did anything resonate? Was there anything that you thought, oh, maybe I do do a little bit of farm to school? Okay, cool. <laughs> That's exciting. Um, okay, so starting to uh, dive into farm to school in the cafeteria, um, I guess I want to preface this by everything that Heidi just shared, that all of the education and the hands-on Experiences and really having the joy of working with food. And I'm okay, unless unless you guys need my. I'm pretty loud. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Okay, I'm here. Um, and so everything that Heidi was was kind of sharing about experiential learning and really. Um, having joyful moments with food that's really gearing kids up to eat what's being served in the cafeteria in schools that are procuring local and fresh products and putting them in their meals. Um, I think a food service professional's biggest fear is probably looking in the trash can and seeing all of the food being thrown away. So if students aren't trying the food, if they're afraid to try it, um, if they're not eating it, there isn't, oh, there isn't going to be buy-in, um, and that's not going to be a very successful farm-to-school program, right? 
So um, obviously, farm to school in the cafeteria can look like purchasing local products to include in meals and snacks and taste tests. Um, but not every school has all of the resources to have uh, a meal made from freshly procured products. They might only be able to purchase one thing or maybe something every month. Um, depending on their setup. So there are a lot of other ways to incorporate farm to school in the cafeteria besides or in tandem with purchasing local products. Um, I want to, um, one thing that Vermont Feed often says is that the cafeteria can be the largest classroom. So I think there are a lot of ways to reinforce messaging in the cafeteria um, by having signage and having students being involved. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that. I'm also going to talk about some of the challenges to getting local products into meals and some resources that exist to help address those. Um, so first of all, like I said, not every school has all of the resources to purchase local products for all of their meals. There's budget constraints. Some schools might not have full service kitchens. Um, kids might not like it, right, because there might not be all of those educational components in the school. So lots of different challenges. Um, so this can look different depending on the school. At the top left, you can see an example. This could be, I don't know exactly what this, the kitchen looks like at the school with the apples, but in a school that might just have a heat and serve sort of setup, um, an easy sort of, no pun intended, low-hanging fruit is getting some handheld fruits, right, that don't require processing and chopping and, um, and serving to kids if they don't have the equipment. So if a school is able to get some fresh local apples and then they do tons of fun activities around an apple, or maybe it's National Apple Month and they're doing, they're all crunching on an apple together, that's a really memorable experience for kids, um, even though they might not be serving everything locally. They have one local product they're really hyping up. Um, the bottom left, this is an example of a school that has the means to have everything procured locally and, and um, processed from fresh products. Um, but as you can see, they included some seed packets with their food, which really made me think about, I, I forgot, her, maybe it was Virginia, the, the woman yesterday who talked about the seeds. Oh, it was Chanda? Chanda, good memory. Um, she was talking about how everything starts with the seeds, and um, I just thought that was really cool that we had a picture here, because I was like, yeah, well, we have some pictures here to show, yeah, it does start with the seed, turns into an apple or a pepper or whatever it is. Um, and then... Uh, all the way to the right, so in some states, there are promotional days every year just to promote fresh products and or fresh local products. And so schools might just choose one day of the year to incorporate fresh local products. It might not be every day. So incorporating local foods and meals, snacks, and taste tests looks different at every school. Um, but connecting it to the classroom, connecting it to these you know, promotional messaging and connecting it to where food comes from is what makes it so joyful and exciting, regardless of how much local products schools are purchasing. Um, so a huge barrier to purchasing locally is often cost. Um, oftentimes, purchasing locally can be cost prohibitive and can be more expensive, de depending on where you are. Um, one thing I wanted to, to share here, some people might be familiar with this, but local food purchasing incentive programs have been building some momentum over the last decade or so. Um, these are essentially programs or policies that are in the states that you see highlighted here. Um, they're policies that are often backed with public funding that is used to reimburse schools 
um, a certain dollar amount per meal that they serve with fresh local items. So it essentially offsets the cost of schools, school um, food service professionals purchasing local products, and it helps them to be able to afford purchasing more local products. So an example, Michigan has a really strong program. It's called 10 cents a meal. So for every meal they serve, they get an additional 10 cents um, in reimbursement. Every meal they serve with local products, they get an additional 10 cents in reimbursement for that meal. Um, in Pennsylvania, we're working on trying to someday pass legislation for this, but we have a farm to school bill um, that actually can pay for some of some of these, these costs if a school wants to incorporate local incentive. So if you're from one of these states, I would definitely see if this exists and I would share this with any schools that you work with and see if they have access to these resources. Um, and then, like I was saying before, everything in the cafeteria, so if there's a wonderful um, if there are wonderful meals that are all fresh and local foods, kids are not going to eat them if there's no buy-in. So there's tons of activities that I'm sure all of you could probably share with me that you've seen, um, but there's tons of activities that students can, can get involved in to really um, encourage their peers to try to, to try new foods or to try to make the food more exciting. So on the left here, this is a flavor station. Has anyone ever heard of one of these? Or seen it? Okay, cool. <clears throat> um, so sometimes in schools they might just have like a heat and serve. Maybe they get frozen broccoli and they heat it and then serve it. Personally, frozen broccoli plain is pretty drab and I'm not a huge fan of it. And so some schools, this one on the left is in Philadelphia, they have this flavor station where kids can just go up and pick an herb or a spice and flavor their broccoli with it. Um, and then on the right, this is a, another school in Pennsylvania, and they had a cooking club where kids would, um, this actually in particular, this teacher, he decided to teach the kids how to make chili using all local items. And so after school, they would go in the cafeteria, they'd use local products, they made this chili, and then they froze it, and then they used it for meals later that week. I think it was for their PA preferred day. And so there's a lot of... Um, there are just a lot of great ways to incorporate kids and youth and having kids really be the promoters of all of this. And, um, and I, I just want to pause for a second and hear to see if anybody has any quick anecdotes about incorporating youth into, into school meals programs. Anyone? Okay. We can save for later. We have some breakouts. Oh, go ahead. Personally, for me, when I was working with kids, it was really funny because we, we did, this wasn't in the school, but it was in a small classroom where we had kids develop, a, they chopped up the stuff to make a vegetable uh, quesadilla, and then I made them an oat-covered chicken tender because I didn't want them messing with Russell and Miller. Um, the chicken tender only got an 80% like, but the quesadilla, even though it had seven vegetables in it, had 100%. Um, and it wow. was because they kind of interacted with it. But we are actually included. With, from a national level, we're really encouraging the flavor stations, especially salt-free options, yeah. as, a, as a chance to kind of give individuality for how they're going to flavor stuff, but also just, um, you know, increase. Once again, I'm not going to eat plain broccoli either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing. 
Um, yeah, and then another example I was thinking about too, um, if students have the opportunity to choose a new recipe, say a school decides they're gonna procure, I know in Montana they procure a lot of legumes and beans and things like that, and so, um, and so there might be an opportunity for kids to try um, like create a new recipe using beans that month and so kids might create two kinds of hummus and then share it with their peers do a poll see what they like best and the winner now that is going to be what's on the, the menu that month um, so lots of different schools do these things in a lot of different ways and thank you for sharing your example oh go ahead That is awesome. I love that. Thank you for sharing. Um, okay, so I'm gonna move on to some community connections. So like Heidi was saying earlier, um, incorporating you know, the community and making sure that all of these concepts that we're learning are tied to the community is very important to give context for, um, for students around farm to school. So, especially we live in Philadelphia so it's an urban community and a lot of students might not have ever um, been to a farm out in you know the middle of Pennsylvania but oftentimes they're seeing pictures of farms and that's what they see it's a picture of a giant farm in the middle of Pennsylvania um, and so you know one way to set context around around farm to school and making sure they know where their food comes from is taking kids on farm trips to farms in their community and teaching kids that we can grow food anywhere. It doesn't just have to be in a huge, large farm. Um, and that urban farming, especially is what we like to talk about, can be a means for growing food. Um, and the food that you have on your plate came from, you know, 10 minutes down the road. So there are a lot of ways in which we connect with farmers so that kids can really understand that you can grow food anywhere. It doesn't have to be um, in this large, you know, farm in the middle of the country. So um, a couple of ways we do that, we send kids on farm field trips. Has anyone worked with a school that sent kids on farm field trips? Okay, cool. And um, this is not only beneficial for the kids, but it's beneficial for farmers because it's another opportunity for them to um, you know, receive income. So it's another way, it's another income stream for them. And it's also an opportunity for schools to connect with farmers so that they can potentially collaborate on other on other projects, maybe procuring some, some local products or maybe um, coming to an event and meeting families and parents so families can learn about the farms and the local, their local food system. Um, these are a couple of urban farms in Philadelphia, some kids tasting strawberries. Um, and then sending kids on the farm can sometimes also be cost prohibitive. It could be logistically challenging. So different organizations are starting to create these virtual farm tours. Um, and these can be paired with any curriculum or any taste test that's done in the classroom to really teach kids about who's growing the food in their community. The Food Trust, we're actually creating one too. It wasn't finished in time for us to show it, but we're featuring three farms. Um, two of them are urban farms. And these are meant to be paired with harvest of the month activities or other taste text activities in Pennsylvania so kids can see who their local farmers are and, and the diversity in farmers that are, that are around them. But we quickly want to show a video of the Small Bites Adventure Club. So this is an organization in Atlanta. Um, 
and they have created a series of videos about getting to know your farmer. And so, hit it, Alex. <laughs> I don't think it's a fruit. It's, I never thought of an olive as a fruit. I think it's a fruit or a vegetable. And then they like soak it in something to make it sour. An olive is the best. If you ask someone, what is an olive? We'll tell you, it's something that's good. Uh, they take a bunch of olives, and then they take out the seed, and then they smash it up, and then they cook it down until they get the oils out. You mix olive juice with oil. You squeeze the yeah. olive in, 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 into then, a container, into a con and then you add flavor. I'm Curtis Pauling, and, right, and we we're can here at the it. Woodpecker Thank Trail you. on a farm. And I wish I could show the whole thing, but we don't have time. But um, essentially, so it goes through the farmer, I know, taking them on a trip through their olive grove and, and showing them how olives are actually made um, so that students know, you know, it's not just, I don't remember what he said, squeezed with something orange, I can't remember. Um, and so anyway, these are, I think these are, you know, a good, a good um, resource for schools that just don't have the, the funds to send kids to the actual farm. Um, it makes a good connection. And then other opportunities for, for schools that might not have funds for transportation are bringing farmers to the school. And um, you know, not all farmers do this, but we've been working with a brand new farmer in Philadelphia and we've you know, posed the idea of coming and they're like, well, let's talk about it. What could this look like? And so I think you know, not all farmers have these sort of agritourism pieces of their business, but oftentimes working with partners like us, different organizations like you, um, together in collaboration, you could create some sort of program or a curriculum or an agenda so that, you know, you could find a way for them to come and make connections. And I think, you know, oftentimes farmers just need some of that support because they're not thinking about that. They're thinking about growing food and we're not thinking about growing food. We're thinking about getting kids to like it and eat it. So, um, so anyway, these are two farmers to the left. This is the Center for Eco-Literacy in California. Um, and then to the right, this is Greener Partners in Philadelphia. Both of these are farmers that basically just bring, um, it's like a walking classroom of growing plants and they just show kids how things are grown. The one on the right, they have a smoothie bike so the kids pick the, the spinach and they put it in a smoothie and then they make the smoothie. So they get to like literally see how it grows and then they get to eat it. Um, so anyway, these are all, all three of these are great ways to connect with farmers and just make sure that kids have more context around the food that they're eating. And then, of course, our family and caregivers are huge, um, huge important people in our communities, and they're also the people who are reinforcing concepts at home. And um, they're also helping to create those joyful experiences around food. And so farm to school, Although it all happens, you know, we're talking about in the school, inviting parents to the school to get them really engaged in what's happening can really help to, to make sure that all of these concepts are reinforced at home, that parents are thinking about, you know, 
how they want to engage their child in food preparation at home or involve them in shopping, you know, or if they're, depending on where they get their food, involving them in making choices around, you know, what they want to eat. So um, we have a virtual cooking class that we recently piloted in Pennsylvania called Cooking Beyond the Classroom. And so you can see this little chef to the left and basically um, the, the little kid and their caregiver, they get to follow along and make a recipe at home and they learn like all of these different cooking skills that can be implemented from age two to, you know, 10. Um, and they're, they're just a lot of fun. And I think parents don't realize sometimes, at least I know, I mean, my kids are tiny, but I think sometimes parents don't realize how, how easy it can be to incorporate kids into preparing food and enjoying it. Um, and then to the right, this is bringing a, a parent into the classroom and they're just making a little fruity face there, which is really cute. Um, and then farm stands. So another way to engage farmers is bringing them on site to sell produce. And again, this could be something um, that this could be a connection that's made on a farm trip. This could be a, you know, a connection that's made maybe going to a farmer's market and talking to a farmer that's there. But in Philadelphia, we have a couple of different farmers that come to schools to provide produce. It's another, again, another market for them. So it's a beneficial, um, it's a beneficial income stream for them as well, as for, and, and then also bringing food to the school. So it's mutually beneficial. Okay, so we talked a lot about, um, you know, all three of the, the C's. So making sure when we're, when we're looking at successful farm to school programs, we've got, well, I guess when you look at farm to school programs as a whole, not all of them do all the three C's, but really strong ones have um, a lot of integration of farm to school concepts in the classroom. They're connecting it in the cafeteria through local procurement and um, youth involvement and promoting local products and nutrition, and then of course, bringing farmers and families into the equation. And so something that we did wanna to share today is thinking through and, sh and sharing some resources to connect with farmers and to connect with community members um, to enhance farm to school programs. So one way in which um, lots of states throughout the country can provide professional development and support for strong farm to school programs is through farm to school institutes. Has anyone ever heard of these before? You've heard of them? Okay. So farm to school institutes, they're run, it depends state by state. In Pennsylvania, the farm to school institute is run by the farm to school network, which Heidi will get into in a bit. But they're essentially professional development opportunities for schools where school teams attend a full day of training around how to implement a farm to school initiative, whether it's gardening or incorporating more ag concepts into curriculum or procuring local products. Um, and they receive they receive a coach throughout the year. So they do this planning and they do this training and then they receive a coach and they implement their, their um, initiative and the coach checks in monthly, provides support, and then they also receive usually a stipend or a, a grant and it depends on the state. Um, but many states have these programs and the best part about this is that you're working with a cohort of other schools from throughout the state so you also get to learn what other schools are doing and usually at these there are there are farmers and there are other organizations that come and provide this professional development so you also receive a lot of different connections um, to 
to resources throughout the state that you, that you are in touch with all year long. Um, other resources that are available in, in Pennsylvania, we have been, and specifically in Philadelphia, we have been carrying out the Regional Learning Collaborative. So this is specific in Philadelphia to our early care and education sites. So take working with early care and education sites um, and bringing together lots of different stakeholders in farm to early care and education, putting them in the same room to network and share resources, and then find ways in which they can collaborate together. So an example of this, um, last year in the fall, we hosted a regional learning collaborative, and we had an early care and education site who was sharing about how they wanted to procure local products, and there was a farmer in the room who happened to to, who happened to have their farm probably two miles away from that early care site, and they said, okay, well, we want to grow food for you. And so they connected, um, and it was mostly because the early care site said, we have a lot of um, Chinese students, and we want to incorporate more local products that are culturally relevant. And the farm said, well, we've been wanting to experiment with X, Y, and Z products. So these are very grassroots opportunities um, for organizations, early care sites, and growers and, and farmers to come together and talk about how they can collaborate within one small region. And um, they've been really successful, and I would encourage other states to adopt these practices. And then on to you, Heidi. Thanks, Katie. All right, so that was collaboration on the grassroots level, right? But then there's so much great work that's happening around collaboration at the national and state levels. Um, so of course we have the National Farm to School Network, which is a wealth of resources. We go to them all the time. Um, but there are also a lot of states, this is not a comprehensive list here, but a lot of states have statewide farm to school networks. And there are so many benefits to that. Um, they are looking for ways to grow initiatives across the state. They often have, um, a, it's a hub for resources, um, if not even financial resources, that they provide. There's often educational opportunities, networking opportunities through these um, networks. They work on policy, advancing farm to school policy, um, and working towards a strong just food system. So in Pennsylvania, the Food Trust um, leads the Pennsylvania Farm to School Network, and that brings together leaders from the Department of Agriculture, Department of Health, Department of Education, um, leaders in early childhood. So it really is um, a very strong network. And of course, all the work that we do is done through partnerships. So this is something to look into in your state. Um, do you want to go to the next slide? Farmer trading cards. Has anybody heard of farmer trading cards? Yes, awesome. Do you have them in your state? San Diego, they're in San Diego, awesome. You can tell my excitement. I think these are the coolest thing ever. Um, so on the left, you can see New Jersey has farmer trading cards. Um, and on the right, that's right here in Virginia. So these are, they look like little trading cards. Um, and they feature a farmer, 
um, from that state, talks about what they grow, tells you a little bit about them, and then the kids get them and they trade them like Pokemon cards. Now, if you have kids, I have a 10-year-old boy, this is amazing, they think it's the coolest thing ever. So on the right-hand side there, um, I actually found out about this one because my sister works in Loudoun County School District. And basically what they do is they show a short video, like the small bites that we saw before, they show a small video in the morning almost every day about a local farmer. So they get a little clip and they learn about their farmers and then they get their trading cards and they get so excited when they have a card that matches the video that they've seen and then they trade them in the lunchroom because Pokemon cards got taken away. So um, really neat resource um, and another kind of layer you can add. And, I, and I've also read that some farmers will use them as business cards and like hand them out at a farmer's market. So if a, you know, if some teacher happens to be there or a food service person or someone who's working in farm to school and they get this business card, it might look, you know, they might look at it and it says, we offer farm trips. So it's a really great, it, like Heidi said, it's an awesome way to promote their, their farm and their business. Um, and then there are local and regional food hubs. Has anyone heard of food hubs? Yeah. <laughs> um, so the U, the, there's, a, there's a specific definition by the USDA, which I put at the top. So um, they define it as a centrally lo located facility with a business management structure facilitating the aggregation, storage, processing, distribution, and or marketing of locally, regionally produced food products. So basically, in lots and lots of states throughout the country, there are these food hubs that aggregate local products, whether it's fruits or vegetables or, or meat, um, and then they sell it. Um, and it really takes a lot of the work out, it, it takes the work, prevents small and mid-sized farmers from having to do all of that work themselves, right? And it's also just a really great way to purchase food from a variety of different farmers. So lots of schools work with these food hubs, and it's a much easier way for food service professionals to purchase local products without having to work with 10 different farmers. They still get to support 10 different farmers, um, but it's much simpler. And um, what was I gonna say? Oh, and then a lot of these food hubs are really mission aligned. So many of them have healthy food access funds or other grant programs so that um, schools or early care sites can purchase products at a reduced cost. So they're really a great way to sort of indirectly connect with farmers and get local products into schools at a, at a um, I would say a less expensive cost than it would be going directly to a small farmer. Um, and then another resource to look into, so at an institutional level, almost every state has either, um, either a state department position dedicated to farm to school and or an extension office position dedicated to farm to school. So if you live in a state and you see um, that it's color coded that it has one of those positions, at least one of those positions, this is definitely a resource for you because you could connect with, if it's someone at the Department of Ag or someone at the Department of Ed, you could connect with them around resources for harvest of the month or maybe it's um, connecting with farmers who are interested in learning how to sell to schools. For example, in Pennsylvania, one of our partners at the Department of Ag, they hold growers sessions. So they essentially teach farmers how to run a business and sell to institutions like schools. 
So they're really great. Um, these are really great resources, and I would encourage you, you know, to take a look at your state and if you work with schools to see if they'll, you know, they want to connect with someone at one of these agencies or these institutions. Um, and then finally, because I know a lot of us here, at least who I've met, work in SNAP-Ed or, or FNEP, um, we're also really great resources, I think, to support Farm to School because we have this really important funding through SNAP-Ed um, that, that can allow us to provide our staff time to support these programs. So SNAP-Ed is a great resource for schools, especially for providing curriculum around Farm to School. Heidi named a few during her presentation, um, so like the Team Nutrition Gardening curriculum or Harvest for Healthy Kids. We can provide teaching materials, taste test supplies. Um, you know, we could choose to purchase it locally so that kids can, can try something, something locally. Um, also providing supplies and support for school gardens. That's a really important piece of, um, you know, of farm to school and it's something that SNAP-Ed can provide. We, have, we can provide staff time, um, seeds, all of those different things. And then, of course, supporting in the cafeteria, so providing signage, working with youth, maybe starting a youth leadership group to, um, to promote and market whatever's on the menu that month. And then making community connections. So I think a big piece of SNAP-Ed is working with partners and finding ways to share resources. Um, and so SNAP-Ed staff can use their staff time to work with other organizations who who have resources that they want to share, um, and connecting caregivers, connecting um, schools with farmers. So SNAP-Ed, you know, it, there are a lot of benefits for a school working with SNAP-Ed. And if, and if any of you don't know what SNAP-Ed is, I don't have time to go through all of it, but it is the, um, but it is the education arm of the SNAP program. And I would encourage a school to look into, um, look at the SNAP-Ed website to see if they have a partner near them that they can connect with. Whew, that was a lot. <laughs> if anybody's sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, you just threw so much information at me. That was totally our intention. Um, we are, we do a lot of work um, in Pennsylvania around farm to school. We're obviously very excited about the work that we're doing and we're constantly trying to grow what we're doing because we really believe that the more touch points there are and the more connections we can create the stronger those programs are going to be and then we're going to reach all those wonderful benefits that we saw at the beginning that come out of farm to school programs so we've done some research clearly around what's going on across the country um, but we're also selfishly using this time to learn from you so we want to hear from all of you i know not everyone said that they've already been participating in farm to school but we want to hear if you all know of anything that we didn't talk about what else is going on that you've heard about across the country really successful innovative um, approaches that are happening with farm to school anybody want to share anything we missed yeah um, I know that there's a school nutrition director thank you Um, okay, I know there's a school nutrition director at Ann 
Arundel County, Maryland. Mm -hmm. And I'm so sorry if I butchered that. It's a really hard name for me to say. She actually, as a school nutrition director, did a whole video series where she went to the farm to talk about the food that was she was going to be serving in the school nutrition or the school cafeteria the next day. And so that was she really uh, saw a lot of positive uh, increase in meal school meal participation with that because she was showing the kids where the food was coming from. And it really is surprising still nowadays, especially with the internet, how many people, and not just students, like literally don't know where their food comes from. So yeah. the school nutrition director doing the videos and showing them really increased meal participation and encouraged kids to eat more. Awesome, thank you for that example. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, my name is Frances Herrera. I work for SnapEd in Arizona. Yeah. And one of the things that we do is that we have something called the Empower Program in Arizona, which are the best practices for the state. But then we also started working with the GoNapsack, which are the best practices for the nation. And we worked with an early childhood site that was interested in doing the Farm to ECE component. So we used the GoNapsack Farm to ECE component to have them assess and see what they want to work on, and then we help them create their policy. So based on that, they chose which actions to take, and one of, the, one of the things that they want to do is that they want to start a garden, but they also want to invite a farmer. So we connected the University Cooperative Extension, the U of A, with them, and they were able to get them someone to, to visit the school. So awesome. that's one of the things that, that we use, the GoNapsack. Thank you. Hey, I'm with SNAPED in Alabama, and we have, a, um, through the Department of Ag and Industries, a local food purchase agreement. It's like a cooperative agreement through the USDA, and so it funds, um, specifically targeted to help fund minority farmers, but it's a mix of farms that produce food, and then that food gets purchased through those funds and distributed to food pantries and schools that qualify, where most of the students are from lower-income communities. And so the SNAPED program partners with um, Ag and Industries and our Farm to School to just sort of make sure that we're collaborating and working in the same sites when possible. SNAPED, as you said, the school's doing taste tests or supporting the cafeteria to incorporate that food that they receive from the local farmers into the school meals and snacks. So that's been a real, it's LFPA is the name of that if you have that in your state. Thank you for sharing that. Yes, you're closer to that one. I have uh, an ex example and also kind of a question for you. So um, in the schools that I work with, we do quite a bit of farm to school gardens. We have gardens, we have um, these smart system greenhouses that can be run remotely. Um, and then we have the hydroponic systems, we do nutrition education. Um, so we have, and most of this has been funding, we call it CalFresh Healthy Living, not SNAP-Ed in California, but um, it's, been actually, they have approved funding for hydroponic systems now, which is pretty cool. If anyone wants to take advantage of that, just kind of start pushing for that. I don't know if that's just a California thing, but yes, we got approved for that. We also got approved um, to provide teachers with stipends to participate more. So we do like a cooking club and so we can incentivize the teachers to actually run it and deliver nutrition education. So that also got approved through SNAP-Ed funding. Wow. 
Yeah. Um, There's some precedent. I know. We, we just keep pushing. Um, so my other question, though, we, ha we run into this problem of kind of pushback from mostly cafeteria staff, cafeteria managers, and then the food service directors, because farm to school work requires more work for them. And if it's not something that they are particularly passionate about, or maybe they're towards the end of their career, they are very, I mean, we did a, um, like a food waste redu reduction project in the cafeterias, and we got like almost bullied by these staff because they did not want us there. Um, have you run into that? And do you have, like, how, how can you create buy-in for those that don't particularly, like, because they don't necessarily benefit from it. They would just be doing it out of, you know, their own passion. Yeah, that's a tough question. And I don't have a direct answer, but what I will say, um, one thing that we've been experiencing, we've been piloting a local food purchasing incentive program, and something that we hear often is the, it's more work, right? So people are now participating in this local incentive program to have more fresh local products, but there's more administrative work. So um, this isn't really an answer that would help at a grassroots level, but I think when states are developing policies around farm to school or around food purchasing incentive programs, making sure that part of that funding that's included in that policy is for more staff that can support administrative time or staff that can support processing and preparing products. Um, but that's not going to help immediately. But that's something we've been talking about in Pennsylvania because we don't have a policy right now. And so when we think about legislation, um, you know, what should be included? And it should be more funding so people have resources. But I don't know if you want to answer. Um, yeah, the only other thing I would add there, um, there's, we did a great training through the Community Innovation Network around community engagement. And as part of that, um, it talked about, you know, everyone has gifts and everyone has things that inspire and interest them, right? So I'm, I might try to figure out in that situation, like, what would be the carrot? What would be the thing for the food service staff, right? Maybe it's that they are trying to get school meal participation to go up, right? That's often a common goal for food service staff. There's tons of data around how farm to school can increase school meal participation. So I might try something like that. But we also have a wealth of resources in the room. So if there's anybody else who has a potential solution to that question that wants to answer. Yeah. I don't, I don't know whether this is a solution, but um, I recently went, so I'm Liz Crockett, I come from New York State. I work in public health, but I am used to work in the child care food program, so I'm super interested in these things. Um, and I recently went to um, a conference of the New York State Dietetic Association, and they had um, some presenters who were passionate about this. So you might be able to find some school nutrition people who do have a passion and see if you can work with the School Nutrition Association and other like, you know, statewide entities, dietetic association, the people who work in the schools and, and if, you know, use all the other resources and then present trainings to them from people who are their own people who are really passionate. And um, it would be good to also try to build in incentives if you can. So if we're incentivizing teachers, let's incentivize the 
uh, cafeteria employees and school nutrition people. These are just ideas. And give them Great continuing suggestion. ed credit for it, so. Yes, yeah. excellent suggestion. Mm -hmm. So we were going to do a small group, but given our five minutes left, I think we'll do this as a large group because I also like how this is working. Um, but that was going to be our next thing, right? So we've talked about so many different resources, so many great benefits, and there's also challenges to implementing all of these things, right? And, and we've already heard one. Um, so we were going to do this in small groups, but we can do this as a large group. And if there's any other challenges that people have experienced, or as you're looking at this, you're thinking, I have no idea how I would do that part because of this challenge. Um, if you wanted to share that now, we have all these wonderful minds in the room. Yeah. Hi, my name is Rena. I'm from actually a health department, so I'm coming from a public health lens. And um, we do interact a lot with, um, with SNAP-Ed and other partners. And when we try to implement um, programs, um, one of the things that we try to cover is um, language needs and translation services. And that's something that we're always told, you know, the program doesn't cover in terms of languages, um, translation services, interpretation. Um, and that's, it's wanting to provide the information, but if it's only provided in English, it's not meeting the needs of the population. So I, and I didn't think I heard anything with the language um, and literacy address, so I'm not sure if that's something that um, you experience and how you or anyone else in the room um, kind of work around it or incorporate it. I see a hand. Um, I was going to say for the language thing, I know one thing we have done is, is move to nonverbal resources. It, it doesn't always work, and it can't always be the answer. But like for example, we have a whole video on how and when to wash your hands, and a single word is never spoken or read. It's all visually shown, like different scenarios. The person kind of stops, you can see them pondering, and then they go wash their hands, and it shows them how they do it, shows the 20 seconds passing, that kind of thing. Um, and as I said, that's not always the, the best, the, the, the perfect fit, but really moving toward you know, like, like infographics with more graphics and, and, or minimal words so they can be easily translated. Um, we've seen that helps us a lot. Um, but the challenge that I have heard voiced from the audiences I deal with is sometimes um, the farmers can't actually deliver enough produce to meet the needs of, of schools or large child cares, especially with larger things. So really um, trying to get partnerships of different farmers maybe growing the same thing and getting them to grow together and just the, the logistics of that. Yes, we hear that a lot. Um, and as Katie's walking the microphone over, somebody raised their hand. I'll just, oh. I'll just comment on that, because the Food Trust also runs farmers markets in Philadelphia. So we're, we're very familiar with, um, you know, especially, I mean, sometimes it's seasonality, right? Or, or just a, a rough season where the farmer doesn't have a lot. Um, and they can kind of purchase in from one another. You can bring them together. There's the um, local food hubs that we talked about earlier, but that is a major challenge. 
um, for, for some. And then also some, for some farmers, the site can't purchase enough to make it worth their while for the, the gas costs to come out, especially if it's a smaller school or a smaller um, early childhood site. So that's definitely um, a challenge. Somebody, oh, here. there you are. Hi. Okay, go ahead. Um, so I wanted to speak to that challenge of um, not being able to meet the needs of the school. Um, I work with urban farmers in Camden, New Jersey. So we recently started a project using the Open Food Network. I think the Food Trust is like partnered with another organization there. But the Open Food Network allows you to connect two farmers that are growing food, local places. Uh, so that might be a way to connect different farmers to each other. You can find them on the map there. Um, and getting that food to schools through that method. Wait one. So 30 seconds. Okay. No problem. All right. Um, well, we will wrap okay. us up then. I wanted to, to thank everyone so much for coming. Um, especially during what is kind of lunch hour. Um, and you know, we'll, we'll stick around as they're setting up if anybody has any mm -hmm. other questions. Otherwise, we will make sure all of these great resources are available through the app or whatever way they tell us to do that. So yeah. thank you. Thank you.
Okay, I'm just going to uh, welcome you. So you stand here for a second and then sit down if you want. Just stand here so I can welcome you. I think so. Can you hear me? Hi, folks. We're going to get started. Hi, so we could, um, if we could get your attention, we have, a, we have a, a lot to do in this session, so we're already uh, a couple of minutes behind, but we'll catch up. Uh, I wanted to just uh, welcome all of you here and introduce myself. I'm Hugh Joseph from Tufts University, and this is Mark Winnie from many places, but including John Hopkins Center for a Livable Future. I also want to uh, recognize our development team. The first four, Joanne Burke, Ricardo, Carlos, Sarah Burkhart, and Kelly Kogan are in the room, and they're going to be resource people during the exercise. So if you have questions about what we're doing or how to do it, um, they'll be around, and we'll be around to help you. We're going to spend uh, most of the time, we're going to do some introductory remarks, myself, and Mark to kind of explain the context of what the workshop and the exercise is. Um, the idea here is to focus on activities of end users and their communities on the food, a, a new model for food consumption than we're used to with supply chains. And then incorporating food citizenship to go along with the theme of the whole meeting, okay? And then you're gonna spend the, most of the rest of the time developing guidelines and recommendations that reflect both of these components. So get ready, get your pens out. There's worksheets on the table. We'll be referring to them and, um, and we'll get going from here. So I just wanted to recognize that it was, I don't know, 37 years ago that sustainable diets as a construct or a concept was introduced uh, by Joan Gussow and Kate Clancy, and I think most of you are familiar with those and with sustainable diets. So I'm not gonna go into great detail about it except in the context of the fact that uh, they were done in, in reference to the dietary guidelines which had just started to be put out at that time. So we thought this would be a good opportunity to do some more broadening of the dietary guidelines than, uh, than have been coming out since then. And they made the case for broadening it to include sustainability as they saw it. And they mentioned environmental, economic, and agricultural dimensions in particular. Okay? So, but there were limitations, there are limitations to this framing. Because um, it fo focuses mostly on what to eat. Okay? So, and because food themselves, they're not really healthy. It's us who are trying to get, be healthy by what we eat and promote sustainability by what we eat, but foods themselves don't have sustainability. They don't, they're, they're not animate, they're just foods. Uh, so sustainability addresses social, environmental, culture, economic concerns across the whole food system. So as such, what we're talking about here is sustainability of, as a systems part of the food systems idea. Okay, so you put food together with systems and you end up with food systems. And that's, it's fairly simple, but if you just take one and you don't have the other, you don't have what we commonly call a food system. And today, we're gonna to focus on this systems idea and not on the food, because we spent a lot of time with sustainable diets talking about food, so we're gonna to try to work around expanding that whole idea. And so, if you look at this idea, food itself, 
what we eat as, uh, as meals or as diets at this end starts as crops and animals and then through manufacturing and processing it becomes prepared goods, formulations, processed food, and then provisions or groceries, and then it ends up on our plates. Okay? So that's just food. Okay? So there's, there's a limitation to just talking about what to eat. Um, and what they did is they re referenced it, their idea to sustainable agriculture because at that time, sustainable agriculture was big. It was really emerging and it remains the only sector of the whole food supply chain that has really evolved a whole com uh, sustainability context to it. It's really interesting that, that it hasn't expanded much beyond that. Today we're going to try and do a little work on it, the other end of it. Okay. So you're all probably familiar with this um, famous adage by Wendell Berry, eating is an agricultural act. But imagine if it was just in terms of food, diets are an agricultural product. It, you know, it doesn't quite resonate. And that's because this is an activity. He's talking about agriculture. Agriculture is not food. It is not just farm products. It's, it's, it's the practice of farming, okay? So it's like saying, that, um, that cars are transportation systems rather than the inverse. Okay, what we're talking about is food systems, transportation systems, however you want to talk about it. And it's more than the single product for which they are designed to be serving. Okay, so in this definition by the HLPE that many of you are probably familiar with, um, it gathers environment, people, inputs, processes, infrastructure, institutions, etc. And uh, as they relate to all these different stages of the food supply chain, okay, so that's where sustainability is centered, not particularly in or just in the foods itself. Um, but what has happened with sustainable diets is the question of who's left out of this supply chain. So here we have the consumer at this end, that's all of us, but we have the farming here and the processing and the packaging and all that, and somehow, what happens at the consumption end seems to be rather neglected in sustainable diets, and a lot of it, as you'll see, is centered in sustainable agriculture. So I've sorted sustainable agriculture. There's millions of different definitions and representations of it, agroecology being the most active and ebullient of them at the, common, at the current time. But it includes the places where it takes, where it happens, the farmers and farm workers who do it, the products they produce, the different perspectives and philosophies under which they carry out their farming and how they do that in terms of it's either organic or it's an industrial model, all the kinds of sustainability problems, especially environmental, that evolve from all of those practices, not from the foods themselves, but from the way that food is produced. So when we go to the shop, to shop, we say, well, where did this food come from? Or how was it produced? Or what about the treatment of farm workers? And all those different kinds of questions. Uh, and that's what, that's what we're looking at here. And then there are the policies around that, the policies that help to regulate how farming is to try and make it safe or more productive or more economic or whatever. But you can, it's a kind of a, a PPPPPP type of production system, and we'll come back to it and see that we can apply that same thing at the consumption end. 
Okay? So what's not currently represented by sustainable diets is this, is this end product. In fact, sustainability in sustainable diets doesn't even talk about healthy, health and nutrition. I find that incredibly curious. Like those of you familiar with the last time they were pushed in the Dietary Guidelines for Americans is 2015, and they wanted to add sustainability to dietary guidelines, okay, as if like health and nutrition were not part of that definition. And it's that model that persists today in the evolution of sustainability in dietary guidelines across the world. I don't understand why they are or are not integrated, but that's a limitation in my view. And the consumption factors that go around the whole of diets is also sort of limited. So this whole end user model, the consumer consumption model, it needs some more work. So you take that same idea here around um, around sustainable agriculture and you transform it or transfer it over to sustainable food consumption. So you, again, you have the players, that's, that's the eaters, that's us, those people who, who eat every day. I think most people in this room do. And the places, in this case, what we're specifically focused on are the household, the individuals and their households and their communities, okay? There's a broader area, but right now we're focused where consumption actually is, is focused in terms of where people uh, act, act it out and, and do their shopping and eating and so on and so forth. Uh, there are the products and they're the principles and values that underlying and shape what, what we buy and what we do. And then these practices, which I'll come back to in a second, and the policies which we're also gonna talk about today. Okay, so there are three core activity categories beyond food itself. So when you, we think about sustainable diets, again, people say buy this or don't buy that and use these criteria. Well, we don't wanna talk about or center ourselves on that because a whole lot of stuff has been done on that. What seems to be limited or even missing are these three core activities of what you do when you eat at home, okay, or when you prepare food at home. You acquire food either by shopping or through other means, um, through food assistance or even gardening or growing your own food or emergency food. And you prepare food, you store the food, uh, you look up recipes, you cook the food or otherwise fix it up for and then you store it and you do meal planning and this, so on and so forth. That all goes into the practices of eating. And the final stage is the consumption part of it. It's not just the actual meal, it's the consumption of it, including the serving and the eating and the cleaning up and the food disposal and things that go with it include stuff like manners and etiquette and all kinds of routines and rituals and things like that. Those are all activities which could, and you may have to decide, is whether these have a role in sustainability the same way as when all the various activities in farming uh, we apply as sustainable farming or sustainable agriculture or agroecology. What, what is about, about at this end of the rope that you consider to be sustainable? What fits into that model besides the foods you should choose because of what happens to them upstream? Okay. So what we're going to be doing is producing guidance, uh, guidelines or recommendations, however you want to name it, uh, for what we're calling sustainable food consumption. So this is, instead of sustainable diets, it's food consumption. It's a more active 
uh, aspect or framing of it than, than diet or just what you eat, okay? Uh, the way you're going to be writing these out is the same way as dietary guidelines are written and sustainable ones in the same way. Um, Gusto and Clancy back in 1986 didn't formulate guidelines. In fact, they didn't start to emerge until the 2000s, and then quite a few of them came out. And they're coming out a little bit more now, but you see them also uh, not in just food-based dietary guidelines, but in other types of, like Eat Lance and in other places that, that suggest, you know, how you should eat as well as what you should eat. Um, but not that many food-based dietary guidelines around the world, like the, like the DGA, have incorporated sustainability, especially in their specific dietary guidelines. Like if you look at this um, study here by... Uh, by, that was just uh, came out at the end of last year. They looked at trends since 2000 in the production of sustainable guidelines in the FD, FEDG, the food-based dietary guidelines around the world, uh, in 83 countries. And it's only in the last, you know, half a dozen years that they've started to emerge. But on top of that, there are two elements to that. You know, one is that they're not always in the guidelines themselves. They're often written in the subtext or the, uh, or the other materials that come along with it. So you don't always see it that way. And the other part of it is a lot of it still focuses solely on environmental sustainability, which isn't a bad thing, but it's, 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 it's rather narrow in the way you look at it. So in a study by Jones et al. in 2016, they looked at 113 sustainable diet studies to see what kinds of components were being analyzed in there. And if you look the way I've assorted these out here, uh, greenhouse gases, cl climate change, however you want to call it, uh, was the most visible in about two-thirds of the studies. Everything else was way down on the list, but environmental issues predominated, okay? Uh, dietary quality, for example, it was not even in a quarter of all of them. So bringing out the point again that nutrition doesn't seem to be considered a part of sustainability, and I'm not really, again, sure why. These other elements that we're looking at today, like social equity, policy, community, cultural appropriateness, they were hardly mentioned at all. So they're very strong bias towards environmentalism and, again, at the production end of things. However, there have been a few uh, FEGGs that have come out that have talked about sustainability beyond just environment, and I'll just go through a couple of them, um, like eat regularly uh, here in Brazil, uh, whenever possible in company, uh, choose minimally processed foods, develop and exercise cooking skills, make food and eating important in your life, Japan's dietary guidelines, enjoy your meals, reduce leftovers and waste, um, those are things that all fit in at the household level or, or at the community level. And again, in Qatar, uh, reduce leftovers and waste, consume local foods, choose fresh homemade foods, conserve water. Those kinds of things are emerging. Uh, there, there's still a fair environmental sort of bias to it, but that's, that's fine. But other aspects of food access, food preparation, and food consumption are, are in there. Other things we've seen, and you're probably familiar with, including you know, the hype in the last couple of years around uh, natural gas appliances, especially stoves, the methane they release and the air quality resulting, uh, food waste and disposal, plastics, of course, recycling, composting, 
and food access and food security remain a dominant theme at the, at the household and community level. So this, uh, this alternative we're talking about takes uh, a kind of a parallel to that. And it, again, we're using these six alliterative uh, elements of it to, to put into place what you're going to be working on at your tables. Again, like with agriculture, I showed you these uh, different aspects of it. We take the same idea and we transfer it to food consumption. And we, we're going to look at players, uh, the household places, the residential habitats, uh, socio-cultural philosophies, which are the principles, the planning, for example, having literacy. Um, we're leaving products out, food choices themselves in this exercise. And the practices are the, and the policies are the main focus for us today. Okay, so in your handout, which you can look at, um, you'll see these different categories, and they're all sorted out in those, so I'm not going to go through them right here. We're going to come back to that. And I'm going to wrap up with, the, finally, that um, these are the three categories, again, that we're going to be thinking about in terms of what is the aspects, the active aspects of food consumption. It's acquisition, preparation, and food consumption, okay? So we'll come back, uh, we'll just do some quick instructions at the end, but uh, Mark, you're going to come and give a few uh, perspectives on food citizenship and how that's going to fit into this as well. We need to um, advance this to my slides. Um, how does this, uh, that's just advance I think that's all mine. Yeah, no, that's all mine. So we need to get into the other one. Okay, so I think that's this one. Yeah. Okay. You know, set you want to go to um, using this one. Use this. Okay. All right. Hello, everybody. <laughs> Good afternoon. Thanks, you. I got 14 minutes and 53 seconds, a shot clock here. Okay, uh, I'm Mark Winnie, and uh, I want to thank you for making me a part of this session and, and thank this great team we had working on this. Um, you know, these ideas are very much a work in progress, and um, you know, sustainability is still something we're trying to get our arms around and figure out how to put into practice. I'm taking on this food citizenship part, partly because that's the work that I've done throughout my entire life, running nonprofit organizations, being act, doing food advocacy, and being very engaged in public policy, which I found more often than not is the best way to engage or to express yourself as a food citizen. Um, I will start off, though, by, by plugging my book, because my, my I do write. Um, when I get tired of doing all the work and so forth, I write about it. So I, my most recent book, Food Town USA, is available today for $10 only. What a deal. So uh, take advantage. We take all forms of payment, uh, credit cards, cash, check, negotiable securities, semi-precious jewelry, anything you have. Good shoes even have been offered in various times. So, and I'm also happy to sign the book, too, which immediately adds 10 cents in value to the book. So that's that. What? They're right there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, Teresa who's helping out today. Thank you very much, Teresa. So I wanted to figure out where do I start with the idea of food citizenship? <clears throat> 
I, I always like to have some foundation, some base. I want to go back as far as I can to think about the idea of, you know, any idea. And I, I, I went back to the Bible, but I really couldn't find anything about food citizenship. There's, it seemed like this guy, Jesus, was always the one in charge and making things happen, and that, that wasn't working for me. So I went to the Japanese Buddhist constitution, which I know you are all intimately familiar with, and I've, I really like this statement that decisions on important matters should not be made by one person alone. I mean, to me, that's the essence of citizenship, you know, that we are going to participate as a group in making the important decisions, i.e. food. Uh, if, if Japan is too far away, I turned, I found some guidance more recently, um, just in the last 30 years or so, from Toronto, Canada. And I particularly like some of their thoughts on this, which are that uh, f few other systems touch people's daily lives as intimately as food. Um, and to me, that really, again, makes an argument for us to be active as individuals and citizens in our food supply, in our food system, you know, beyond just simply thinking about the act of consumption. And a lot of this is derived from what we have today for a food system, the dominant food system or the industrial food system or any of a number long list of pejoratives and expletives that describe uh, the food we eat. Uh, that food too often is treated as a commodity. Uh, we exist only in a marketplace um, and that we are no more than consumers. I like to think we're much more than that and that we have a reason and the need to participate. And that in fact, the only way that we can sort of push back against this sort of dominant food system is to act as food citizens and to engage in that process. Uh, you know, we, uh, in fact, public policy is the only countervailing force other than, you know, acts of consumption, uh, the countervailing force to the overall dominant food system, which is telling us what to do, again, treating food as a commodity and treating us as no more than consumers. So that's why over the years during my work, uh, even though I was very actively engaged in uh, developing a number, numerous number of, of food projects and activities on and on and on again, I really found that I had to turn to public policy in order to make a big enough difference to really try to establish some alternative to the dominant food system. Um, so again, with some guidance from our, our Canadian friends, uh, I can't, we came up with some of these ideas, which I think were sort of, when you're making a choice, you know, when you're thinking about what to support and how to act, here are some thoughts that I'd ask you to consider. Um, you know, I think we all want to support charitable food activities, and I know we all do in some way or another. It's very important. But we also want to be thinking about how those activities or those organizations are also active in, uh, as citizens or promoting citizenship or in public policy. I have two examples from my home, one from my home in uh, New Mexico, our food depot, which is our food bank, uh, just engaged, very active, does typical food bank work, but really got involved in a living wage campaign so that we can get to some of the underlying causes of hunger, uh, food, dis you know, uh, income and wealth disparity, among other things. So they, I'm going to support them because they are also doing public policy work. 
the Lutheran Immigrant and Refugee Services I'd learned about over the last year or so in the context of some of their work with Ukraine. And uh, you know they are doing typical refugee kinds of assistance, very important, of course. But they're also testifying before Congress to try to reform immigration laws in this country, which is desperately needed. So I think that, you know, again, if you're thinking about who you're supporting and what they're doing, and they're sort of cons normally considered a typical charity, well, th look again and see if they're also doing that kind of, you know, that real backbone work of uh, fighting for, you know, policy changes and addressing the underlying causes of the problems that they need that charity for. Uh, health professionals, I want you to engage, engage directly in advocacy. Don't sit back and just be a nice looking professional. <laughs> Go out and actually get your, make, you challenge the, pe the decision makers and uh, let them know what's going on and what changes need to be made. Build the capacity of consumers and clients. Also this idea of multiple interventions and being food system oriented. You know, we all have our sort of piece of the food system, the project or the activities or the things that we do. But let's also be thinking about you know, that how this big thing we call a food system connects and that, you know, the problems are complex and we often need to do many things to address a single problem. You know, no single intervention in most cases is enough to resolve that problem. We need to be multi-intervention oriented. And then I think lastly is to take a look at what we as individuals can do, um, you know, it, through our acts of consumption. You know, I, I probably drive people nuts when I go shopping, just like many of you do, and you're like always looking at the packages and reading all the labels. And if I took my children shopping and they, oh, dad, I don't want to hear another philosophical diatribe about why you should buy this cereal. Uh, but in fact, you know, I like to have some information beyond simply, say, the nutritional content of the product. So I'm, you know, I'm shopping at a farmer's market because I want to support local farmers, and I believe that promotes sustainability, among other things. I may want to join a CSA. You're familiar with a lot of, I, you may know of the work of Equal Exchange, a fair, one of the better fair trade organizations out there. Uh, they really are looking at a whole range of issues. Now, here, this one you may not be familiar with, it's called Sitka Salmon Shares. Um, you're buying, in this case, you're buying fish from fishermen from Alaska, for the most part, who are organized in a company that they all own. Small fishermen using uh, environmentally approved or sustainably approved uh, fishing uh, methods. And that the waters of Alaska are the best regulated fisheries in the world. In fact, they are. There's a lot of sort of maybe some contention here and there about parts of that, but in fact, that's what it is. I had the opportunity to go to Sitka, Alaska and learn a lot more about it. Uh, that is why I decided to start buying this product from them because I had a sense of that they were doing the right thing that they, and that there was a big policy component involved and there was a lot of citizenship being expressed through the fishermen through the native Alaskan population as well who are participating in different forms throughout that process. Um, so it's just a way of trying to think, how do I take the consumer choices I make, I need to be looking above the plate to be looking at the policies that have some implication for what, for how that food is produced, et cetera, et cetera. I'm gonna, I'm gonna skip this one for now. Um, 
going to go to a couple more sort of direct illustrations. Um, I think, you know, I, I use farmer's markets because it's an e easy example, perhaps, but, um, you know, I shop there, you know, as I said, because I want to be a, I want to be a good consumer. I want to, you know, get high quality food. I feel that, you know, I want to support locally produced, uh, you know, locally, I want to buy locally produced food. But as a consumer, with a sort of slowly emerging citizen sensibility, I also want to think about how to, well, maybe what, what, why is this farmer's market located in this place? And maybe I want to get that farmer's market uh, located in a place that serves more people in my community, that it's also serving sort of the lower income areas more effectively than some big central popular, sometimes tourist oriented market. Um, so then I'm starting to look at local ordinances, local rules and regulations, um, zoning and so forth. So I'm becoming a little bit more aware as a citizen about what goes into, say, the siting of a farmer's market. But if I really want to go more deeply into this subject, and I want to be what I'm calling a full-on food citizen, I'm going to work with others to ensure that that those markets are affordable and accessible to everybody. And that's going to take me into sort of a, another realm of, of citizenship work, often much more engaged in public policy. Let me illustrate this a little further. Um, I, liked, I do like this quote, left to themselves, economic forces do not work out for the best, except for the most powerful. Another Canadian, John Kenneth Galbraith, uh, Nobel Prize winning economist. In public policy is the only way we can balance the marketplace. We can fight back against the dominant food system. And when we look again at farmers markets, uh, you know, the attempts that we've been made over the years, uh, Hugh and I both were working on setting up WIC farmers market programs uh, in the mid 1980s. Um, that was at least 100 years ago. And you know, this was one of the very first efforts to try to make sure that markets were available to, to people who were nutritionally vulnerable. Uh, that expanded and kept diversifying to seniors, uh, to veggie, the veggie prescription programs, to SNAP incentives, uh, programs like Finney, which is sort of the precursor to GusSNP. You may be, I'm certain you're familiar with most of these, but it was many different ways that we began to engage public policy. Uh, particularly at a national level, in order to make sure that farmers markets and locally grown food and local food systems were be being used and more accessible and responding to the communities that needed them the most. I use one little example down here at the bottom, uh, which is my own, one of my Santa Fe markets, was that, uh, you know, we had to, we had to develop a new site that was more accessible to uh, the low-income community, and that, re that required work that was being done, policy work and citizenship work being done at the local level to find a good site. We had to work with the policies of a private institution, in this, in this case a healthcare organization, to provide both a site and money to support much of the work of that market. Um, we then actually established a market that had, at one point, had six different incentive programs operating. Some of them federally financed, some of them um, financed by the state, and some of them were private and local. 
So you'll find that kind of mix, in other words, of policy, different levels of government, and sometimes public and private partnerships in order to make sure that a, a particular process, uh, food project is ex both accessible, affordable, and, and equitable. Um, just a quick look at policy itself. You know, I use that term a lot, but in, if it's really important if you're going to get into food, be a food citizen, to be thinking about what level of government you might be working at. And you really do have to spend time learning about how government works. I've, I continue to, I, I feel like I'm a, a perpetual student of government. And, um, you know, if I'm going to be looking at how to set up a farmer's market, I need to have local governance engaged. If I need money, I'm going to probably be going to the state. Uh, if I need to be making, you know, I need looking for bigger projects, bigger amounts of money, uh, major, even systemic changes in the way that food assistance programs work, I need to be looking at the federal government. Um, so, and then here we just on the left, there's a whole kind of list of where we do a lot of this work. I do say one thing about policy that from what I've learned, and it's, you know, people shouldn't be frightened by it. Uh, you are a citizen, you have, you elect people, uh, you vote for them, you have the right to show up and have your voice heard. And a lot of the work isn't really about like changing big laws or having like, you know, making, major, having major campaigns, though that stuff does happen. It's kind of the small P of policy. You know, that's that part of just working with the administrative or bureaucracies of different levels of government. It's also very much about relationship building. As a citizen, you should be building a relationship with members of your city council, of city government, state legislature, state government. It's those relationships that often, more times than not, lead to major, to, to some really good policy wins. Uh, one way to really express this and to encapsulate it is to, um, is to work with the Food Policy Council. Uh, how many of you are involved in, a, in the Food Policy Council anyway? It'll show a hands, if any connection at all. Okay, just a few of you. Um, but this is really the best way to get involved. Uh, when we started out, uh, the, the Food Policy Council that I organized in Hartford, Connecticut, <clears throat> about um, somewhere in the 1990s, it was this actually the second longest operating food policy council in the country now. Today there are over 300 across the country. About 30 of them or so are uh, state uh, food policy councils. Uh, you can learn more about them at uh, the Johns Hopkins site, foodpolicynetworks.org, food policy and they have all kinds of information, foodpolicynetworks.org, all kinds of information about food policy councils, including where they are and everything you want to know about them. So they're absolutely a good way to uh, you know, make sure that you have a, a place to sit and a voice. The last thing I'll say about this is even with all this knowledge you gather about being a food citizen or working on food policy, sometimes you just got to ask, and then you got to ask again and ask again. In other words, you have to be persistent. You have to keep showing up. You know, when I first did this, I, came to the, I went to the mayor of Hartford, and I said, we need to start a food policy council. And he told me I was completely out of my mind. He had no idea what I was talking about. 
few years later, we got a food policy council. We asked the, the Department of Agriculture for a few bucks to start a WIC farmer's market program. At the time, we had 10 farmer's markets in the state. Today, we have 130. So you just got to keep asking, and you got to keep pushing. And all the growth that has taken place over the last 30 to 40 years is a result of that kind of persistence and showing up and having your voice heard and being a good food citizen. So that's it. Thank you. To get back to the other slide. All right. Okay, so now um, I'm just going to go through uh, a few of the instructions for the exercise that we're all going to get involved with. Uh, while we're doing that, if those of you um, who are at tables uh, with less than three or more than four, if you could just move around to the table so that we have either three, groups of three or four. Okay, you can have you can have two groups per table. Okay. Yeah, you can have you can have two teams per table. So that's fine. Just just cluster together so if you're not I want to quickly uh, talk about the items you have so if we can get folks attention. Hmm? Yeah, just um, not more than, because there's enough space, got three or four. I think we're there. Okay, so um, if you could, if I can get everybody's uh, focus for a second. Great, so look through the packets that you've got. There's a lot of things there. We were working on the assumption that there might be four or five. We didn't know how big the turnout would be or the number of people at each table. But you'll have one worksheet per person, which is the individual worksheet. And then you're going to have a team worksheet after that. So for the first uh, eight minutes or so, or maybe 10, hi, can we get folks focused up here? Hi. Um, for the first 
uh, eight or ten minutes, you're going to be writing on your own, okay? So we want you to write down um, guidelines that or recommendations uh, using the materials that we've given you or the ideas that you have on your own. And then after that, you'll cluster together as a team and you'll talk through your suggestions and come up with a master list of eight or ten that you all agree are your that you all agree on. Okay, and at the end of that, uh, we'll have a few minutes for each table to give out one or two of their suggestions. Okay, so again, focus on the three uh, practices: acquisition, preparation, and consumption. Uh, focus only on the household and community level. So there are things that happen in sustainability across the whole supply chain, but here we're just talking about what happens in your homes or in your communities or uh, in the institutions that are out there can involved with food. And think about, this is the challenge here. This is the big challenge. This is new, okay? Sustainability doesn't have a, an essential definition. It's got a hundred of the hundreds of them. Um, it's sort of what we think belongs to sustainability. And we know that at the core of it is environmentalism, but there's still social, economic, cultural, and other aspects. So that two-page handout you have of factors gives you ideas of things that you can reflect on and say, I think we need some guidance on this, okay? Um, you can go off of those, don't repeat them, but think of them as, as examples that you, then you can write out. You can write out as many as you want. If you have more ideas than eight or 10, certainly go to town. But we'd like to see if each individual and then each table can come up with at least eight or 10 of those. Okay, and when you write an when you write a recommendation or a guidance, do it in that kind of instructional way in which we showed you, or where the dietary guidelines are written. It's kind of um, in that style. If you have any questions about that, I can go over it, or people, um, some of our team can go, can go over it. But it's basically uh, guidance. It's not fully structured, but it's it's. It's write it out as a sentence, essentially. You can be positive, do this, or negative, don't do this. You can be you know, very focused, or you can be fairly broad. But we don't want you to make food advice, per se, dietary advice, because that's out there. We want to focus on the activities that you engage with uh, when you're preparing food, or acquiring food, or shopping, or eating, or just uh, cleaning up, or all that kind of stuff. So when you're thinking, well, what really makes up for sustainability? Use those agricultural, all the ideas in agriculture, and there doesn't, there's not obvious correspondence, but those categories that are out there, considering the cultural, economic, social aspects of it, uh, they all they all fit in. And be creative. There's nothing um, right or wrong about sustainable guidance. People write stuff all over the place. If they just think. Sustainability is for something to endure that we think is positive and constructive for all for all people going forward. Okay, then again, we want you to write them on the master list and even on your own list, reasonably legibly, because we're going to compile them and then make them available for all of you through the SNEB website. Okay, um, there's a. There are two columns on the left, one for citizenship and it's C and one for sustainability. Just check off which it applies to or both if it does. And as I say, collect them. Uh, the instructions are all there at your table, by the way, that, that I'm reading out here. Um, and if any of you has a laptop, 
um, or a device and can record them, we'd like you to send them to us. So otherwise, we have to rewrite them and, uh, ourselves and collect them all and gather them so it can save us time. If you don't have one, but you can uh, take, a, take a copy of it, or just write it down. There's no internet in this room for you to send it to unless you have a connection to a phone. So uh, you can take that address with you and email it to us uh, when, when you have that. And that's just the, uh, the master list that you put together at the end. Okay, but we do want all the individual and team written versions for us to, to collect. And if you want, uh, the whole genesis of this uh, is from this article uh, <clears throat> that explains what food consumption is about. So if you have any questions, there's a bunch of us around the room uh, to help you if you're uncertain or unclear. But, um, uh, but please get started and we'll give you about five or ten minutes and then, and then you'll go for it. Uh, work as a group after that and then a little bit before the end we'll have people read out some of their guidance. Uh, are there any procedural questions? Yes. Sure. Okay. Um, so if you can get going, um, I don't think I missed anything, but yeah.
Are people still writing? Put up your hands if you're still writing. Okay, we'll give you two or three more minutes and then you'll start working as teams. We have about two more minutes. Okay, um, we're going to start the transition. If you still have ideas to write, uh, feel free to continue. But if I can have your attention for just a second, everybody. Um, the idea of the team list is for you to kind of look at each of your own lists and come up with a set of guidelines or recommendations that you will all agree on. Um, again, um, the list can be as long as you want, but there's room for 12. We asked for at least eight or 10 uh, that we'd like you to do. And you know, part of that is sort of to encourage discussion about what something means to either be citizenship or discussion or sustainability or both. Uh, again, write legibly because um, we want to record them. We, we suggest one person be the scribe, okay? And then copies what uh, everybody else agrees to and then we'll go from there. If you have any strategic questions, just let us know we're around. Thank you.
Hi, folks. We wanted to um, see if we could get the last few minutes here of this session to hear from every one of the tables. Uh, a couple of the suggestions and guidelines that you've come up with, any thoughts that go along with it? So there's enough time to, to do that if we uh, hear one or two from each table. I wanted to mention that um, that there's a, we, we would like you to leave both your individual and team collections, uh, lists with us so we can aggregate them. We're going to compile them and we're going to make them available to all of you along with our slides. So those of you who wanted them, we just have to uh, find some uh, enough time uh, to compile them all, but we appreciate it that you wrote them all out well. You can finish up where you are, but if uh, somebody would like to uh, start and give us one or two of the th thoughts you had or suggestions you had, maybe we'll start. Any, any one table want to get started? And you can come up, there is a mic, so it would be easier since they're recording this if you come up to the mic and speak. So the person who is a, who is a scribe might want to come up and uh, read a couple of them. Thank you. ideas in our group, but we only got to write down five. Um, so one focusing on preventing waste, so education around like telling individuals to use all parts of the food or like proper storage methods. Maybe redirecting food waste, so like more composting on the household level and eventually making like a municipal compost system. Reducing food packaging, so like trying to buy food in minimal packaging, so maybe going to like bulk buy shops or use using like a reusable container if you're getting like deli meats or cheeses. Um, supporting local restaurants that utilize compostable packaging. And then also finding a way to compile resources in the community. So maybe you have like a community-led forum where you compile resources of like local restaurants that focuses on like farm to table. Or maybe just best practices in general of how you are sustainable in your household, just to kind of have them engage with each other and share those ideas. Thank you. Uh, we talked a lot, uh, we had a lot of great ideas, but two that stood out to us uh, the first was making recipes available in various yields so that if you have an older individual cooking for one versus a mom cooking for herself and two children versus someone cooking for a large family, they would be able to 
more easily utilize recipes and making sure that some of the recipes you make available are community developed so that they represent the community from which they come. Uh, and then we talked about, similar to minimal packaging, just being mindful and building awareness around the use of convenience foods versus minimally packaged and processed foods, recognizing that at times we may all need to utilize a convenience food and not beat ourselves up over it because we're all busy and recognizing that the families we serve may also be in that same space. But if we can build a mindfulness and awareness about when can I make that different choice or when can I make my utilization of convenience foods the exception and not the rule, then we could be informed and empowered food citizens uh, just by building mindfulness and awareness about our behaviors. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, your hand up. Yes. All right, so our group, um, we talked about uh, several different things, but I think one of the ones that we really liked was organizing community-led cooking classes and healthy meal prep sessions, um, really emphasizing the farm-to-school approach as well within this um, intervention. Um, and what's cool about that is that you're able to tailor it particularly to the community, and so maybe capitalizing on a particular cultural holiday and finding you know healthy alternatives to different sweets or snacks that's usually eaten during that holiday and you know showing there are other healthier alternatives that you can consume that still help celebrate that special you know holiday so that's like an example we were talking about um, we also were this one kind of ties into it, educating individuals on culturally significant practices, recipes and production avenues um, so really highlighting both the theoretical and practical um, and then in terms of food waste, researching alternate methods of food redistribution to mitigate food waste. Um, so this could look like several different things depending on the institution that community members are looking to uh, support. Um, and then encouraging creation and participation in more community and homestead gardens, pretty self-explanatory. And then one of ours was not really locally rooted, but I think it does involve a big community presence in order to do um, you know, in order to make a change in this area, and that's dismantling racially motivated and discriminatory practices, such as supermarket redlining. Um, and those, uh, although it is a systemic problem, it does require um, community members to band together in order to even voice that this is an issue, because sometimes it gets overlooked. So those are our ideas. So I agree, I mean, so we have um, covered very much uh, strategies very related to what you all said, but I just want to add two uh, ones that really stands out. One is to reduce food waste by having better policy related to um, expiration dates information, like whether it should be used by, sell by, best buy, all those things so that we can reduce food waste. And then also, uh, instead of, STEM, we should now focus on STEAM for the school curriculum, so having agriculture along with uh, science and technology for uh, our youth to also consider agriculture as a career um, uh, to improve the local food system. And then also very much related to what you all said, uh, county level funding for community or school-based gardens and also um, funding towards creating community centers so that people can come together for a potluck or for the community lunches and bringing um, 
the local support system, strengthening that first before going out, uh, waiting for others to help. So that's, yeah. Thank you. Many of the guidelines we've um, put together have already been shared, but a couple that focus a little differently um, is and kind of goes off what was just said, but engage your neighbors in food conversations and discussions. That's probably a pretty easy one um, and could have a great impact on a lot of the other things that have been mentioned. Um, and then something that connects more in the family um, center, prioritize education or as I would say, enculturation um, of knowledge and skills that allow family members to share in the food preparation and food making tasks. Anybody else like to share? Thanks. Um, we had just a couple more that we would add here as well. One is to be mindful or aware of the experience of eating. Um, and then another would be to uh, innovate solutions and partnerships or, and partner widely in support of the food system, um, thinking a little more along the food citizenship guidelines. Hi, so our group talked about a lot, but the one thing I would like to highlight, and I invite my team to share more if they'd like, is uh, the C's, uh, create and celebrate a culture of cooking. <laughs> um, whether it be through like building holidays around cooking, like a national cooking day or a monthly cooking day, right? Um, just celebrate wherever you can this uh, willingness and ability to learn more about cooking and continue cooking as much as we can. Anything else you'd like to? You good? Thank you. Anybody else like to share? A lot of great things here. I hope everybody wrote them down on their papers, okay? Make sure it's written down so we have that great info. Okay, here and then over here. Um, I just wanted to add one more, which is um, looking at, and I don't know what the authority is, maybe it's Department of Energy or Transportation or something, but working on uh, developing regulations about prioritizing the use of our limited fossil fuel supply that we have left. So I'm thinking about when I see an 18-wheeler with Coca-Cola written on the side and it's using fossil fuels to truck basically sugar water, which is not great for health, and it's not great for health to burn the fuels. I think, can we think of a way to develop some regulations to prioritize the use of fossil fuels for, in the food system, transporting nutrient-dense foods and drier nutrient-dense foods. So beans and grains, pulses, fruits and vegetables kind of lower on the list because they're heavily laden with water. But looking at what is the fuel efficiency for quality and nutrient density. Um, so our group kind of went 
um, family, like individuals, and then also community. Uh, so for the fam or individual level, um, we were pretty specific, meal plan and shop intentionally, be creative with your food leftovers, building relationships with your neighbors so that you can share foods, um, and then learn to use food scraps to make stock. And then for a more community-based um, recommendation, we went with food pantries should work with local restaurants and retail shops, sorry, to reduce food waste and increase the variety of foods. One thing um, I just wanted to point out also, and that was mentioned earlier, is that uh, I don't consider industrial eating to be compatible with sustainability and food consumption that uh, come up with this idea of ultra-convenience that combines eating highly processed foods and most of it that comes from big food and there's a disproportionate percentage of our diets now that comes from highly processed or ultra-processed foods and then going out and getting it and not engaging in it. If that's the case, you have no control over how your food is produced or where it comes from or any of the ingredients in it, you know, that you want to have in or don't, didn't want to have in. So it's that lack of agency, that lack of engagement that comes from industrial eating. And so if you want to eat a healthy diet, I think you have to really eat at home uh, or, or equivalent. And people say, well, we're eating, we're spending half our money uh, eating out, well, but that we're not, eating half our food out. We're just spending a lot of money to eat a little bit of food. So we still do make most of our food at home. I think there's one more share out. Okay. And then we just have one final statement. Yeah, it's actually not a share out. It's more of a question that we discussed in our uh, table. And that is that I think one of the things we are struggling with is what is the definition of sustainable so that when somebody goes and buys something, there's not a label I can read a label, nutrition facts, and I can say, yes, no, I'm not going to buy that because it's healthy or unhealthy. Or I can stay to minimally processed or unprocessed. But still, even if I'm buying a fruit or vegetable, completely unprocessed, I have no idea if it's grown locally. I don't know how the farm workers were treated. I don't know how much water it takes. I don't know where. So anyways, that's just a request that we need to figure out how to um, measure what is a sustainably grown product and then how to communicate that even to ourselves. Is there any, any more, Ricardo? I don't see any more hands up, no. Okay. Um, for those of you who are able or willing and able to um, okay. send these to us uh, on a computer when you get to some uh, uh, internet and with laptop, any time, it doesn't have to be immediately or today. Take a photo of the master list with you so you can leave the list on the table. And that's the best way, I think, to do it so that you don't have to take it with you. Bob, what? Okay. No. Sure, but let me, uh, I, I just want to um, wrap up by thinking, by thanking the team that uh, Mark and I have, and I especially worked with, uh, who are here today, especially Joanne, Ricardo, Sarah, and Kelly, who have been around the room, 
and Mimsadell and Diane Smith, some of you know or don't know, but we spent better part of the past year trying to figure this out, and we will continue to do so. And under, underlying this is the still dream I have that SNEB can develop the next set of sustainable dietary or food consumption guidelines. But until we have figured out what sustainability is and, and things like that, you know, we don't want to just regurgitate another bunch of things. It's these types of questions we ask before we can just say, yeah, this is how we should go forward. So this is part of that whole continuing effort to figure out, does it make sense for this organization maybe to go forward and promulgate sustainable uh, dietary or food consumption guidelines? Thanks, Ricardo. Thanks so much to you and Mark for leading this presentation. And I just wanted to do a quick plug because this has been put together by um, the Sustainable Food Systems Group. If anyone is keen and passionate, which I'm sure you all are, because there's been some great thoughts, um, we have our division meeting at 11 o'clock tomorrow. So we would love to see you there if you would like to come and engage in more conversations or get involved um, as well. So hopefully we'll see a few more faces there. 11 o'clock tomorrow. I can't remember the room, sorry, but you can find it on the app, hopefully, or find one of us and we'll work that out. But thank you all again for, for coming and engaging in such a great discussion.
Working on that? Oh, yeah. Oh, there it is. I'm, okay, hi. Let me do a quick version of that. I'm so happy to see all of you. We're here in person, and it's wonderful, very energizing. My name is Marissa Burgermaster. I'm a faculty member at the University of Texas at Austin, and I am um, currently a member of the board of directors of the Society for Nutrition, Education, and Behavior. This is actually my last event as a member of the board of directors, and ironically, the very first one that I've done in person. So I'm happy to see all of you. If you have any questions about SNEB, please feel free to ask me. I am very happy to have the opportunity and privilege of moderating this session, exploring research on novel approaches to e-nutrition education interventions. We've got four fantastic speakers. We are really representing Texas today. So um, I'm sure we're all very happy to be out of the extreme heat for a couple days. Um, and I'm gonna go ahead and just remind the audience of a couple housekeeping things. We are going to hold questions until the end. I'll invite all the presenters to come up to the front at the conclusion um, so that we can um, ask some questions across all of the e-nutrition education interventions. And um, I think that's all that I have for the audience. I've already spoken with all of you. So without further ado, I will introduce our first speaker who is Kelsey Baez from Texas State University. Hello everyone, thank you. My name is Kelsey Baez. I am a Texas State University dietetic intern and I just recently completed my master's there. And today I'll be talking to you about a collaboration that Texas State had with Texas WIC, which explored the delivery of nutrition information through the Texas WIC chatbot, Maya. <clears throat> so the WIC program, the Special Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants, and Children, is a federal nutrition program that focuses on the nutrition importance and access for eligible participants to be able to prevent nutrition-related problems. It serves women, infants, and children up to the age of five, and, <clears throat> excuse me, and a mandatory component of it is nutrition education. Now, while this nutrition education um, can vary, a priority area is uh, infant feeding practices, which would include breastfeeding, formula feeding, and uh, introducing first foods, complementary feeding. Um, okay. So, um, a little background. The WIC program has seen a steady decline in participation, and with the decline in participation, uh, it has been promoted for modernization of WIC. Now, part of the modernization of WIC is uh, tech innovations. Some innovations that have been implemented in WIC include the uh, uh, messaging systems, it's online uh, classes for some, some states, and uh, developments of uh, mobile apps are some examples. Uh, Texas WIC developed the first ever WIC chatbot, which again we call Maya. And um, <clears throat> with Maya, she is a software-based chatbot, which means that whenever a user interacts with Maya and asks a question, 
the user will receive a pre-programmed response that was um, developed. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me. The development of Maya was, uh, it positioned users as the experts in the development of the chatbot. So that's everything from concept ideation to the development and also the evaluation. In evaluations of Maya, uh, how she performed during frequently asked questions, we found that participant WIC clients were using her to seek some nutrition information. That nutrition information included breastfeeding, infant formula feeding, and um, some complementary feeding. So um, that led us to explore whether uh, Maya would be able to provide nutrition information if that was something that the what clients were interested in, and if so, what are those expectations? So a little bit about our research team. This was a collaboration between Texas WIC and Texas State University. We had over three registered dietitians on our, on our team. Four uh, graduate students, we all concentrated in uh, nutrition. Uh, uh, in nutrition. Uh, we have former nutrition, uh, WIC nutritionists. Uh, several of us are multilingual, and uh, me personally, I have two children under the age of five. So a little about our study design. So um, as I mentioned, we identified the topics, which were the infant feeding practices, breastfeeding, infant formula, uh, uh, formula feeding, and complementary feeding. And um, we used a combined theoretical framework that pulled uh, behavioral and technology models to influence the development of a semi-structured uh, qualitative interview guide, which was used to uh, host interviews on the Zoom platform, which uh, were audio and visual, visually recorded and then transcribed. Those, uh, those transcriptions were then used to do a multi-pass two-coder qualitative uh, ev evaluation, a two-coder system, excuse me. And um, we also included mem memos of uh, incidents that occurred throughout those, uh, tr throughout those transcripts. So from there, we took those codes and those memos and we condensed them a lot <laughs> and um, were able to arise with some themes which this is part of that process. <laughs> and uh, for recruitment, we, had, we recruited through targeted social media advertisements and through recruitment surveys, and were able to book the participants and host them, as mentioned, on Zoom. We had a total of 19 participants, and of that, 15 of them identified as having multiple children, and the overwhelming majority of them had never used Maya before. But interestingly, whenever interacting with Maya and seeing uh, her functionality, they identified that uh, nutrition information was something that they wanted to seek in breastfeeding, formula feeding, and first feeding. The stars that you see uh, here are what the WIC participants identified as top priorities of information that they would want to seek on Maya. So uh, with, Excuse me, let me take that. The, we, the participants identified, we identified motivations within the participants on how they would seek nutrition information. 
One of the motivators was the trustworthiness in the WIC program and the fact that they would be able to gain the information that they were seeking um, and they'd be able to save time while doing that, so not having to vet other sources. Now, um, <clears throat> they also like anticipated that the information that Maya provided would give summaries and be able to be more concise information and that they perceived it as faster than um, some standard practices such as calling a hotline or um, going into to a WIC building. Uh, an additional motivation that participants identified were stressful factors. So that could include being a first-time mom and not knowing how to handle a situation such as, um, such as having a colicky baby or having uh, pain while breastfeeding and trying to troubleshoot those issues. Uh, participants also identified that they would seek updates in information. Uh, the updates could include benefit changes that they may have experienced, uh, changes in COVID procedures and what to anticipate when meeting, uh, meeting in person. And also there was an ongoing formula crisis at the time of the study, so wanting to get information about the formula crisis and WIC's responses to that. It was also identified that participants would like for Maya to be able to navigate the website, to be able to get them to information quicker, to be able to collect um, videos, and, or excuse me, correct myself, to be able to connect to videos, whether that be through hyperlinks or um, actually watching the video in the chatbot itself. Um, it was also viewed to uh, be able to help navigate their benefits potentially through customized interactions by the chatbot being able to know their uh, current packages and their child's age and making recommendations off of that, which would include what type of online education classes to, to take. Also recommending recipes was brought up. So um, additionally, participants discussed opportunities that they saw within Maya to be while seeking this nutrition information. These opportunities included being able to connect to representatives after, generally after they had already tried to seek the information themselves, but it also was um, uh, discussed as they would like to be able to have the access through Maya to get other WIC client stories, especially in times of troubleshooting such as breastfeeding issues or having a colicky baby. Uh, an additional opportunity that uh, participants I identified was the um, anticipation of uh, poten potentially promoting different behaviors, so increasing fruit and vegetable intake or um, being able to utilize more of their package because a recipe recommendation came through that uh, included their, their specific package. Um, also, they had discussed uh, potentially uh, being able to retain more, uh, be able to stay within the WIC program and through retention. Additionally, participants identified that uh, Maya should be available across other platforms, which included the Texas WIC app. And these findings are consistent with literature that we have seen. Um, interestingly, the, they, uh, there is a seeking of concise information through a chatbot or through existing technologies. And um, 
being able to seek social support. It has been supportive and also dis discussed as non-significant. So uh, th it is a uh, still an area that is to be explored. So with that, the implications of this information is that public health uh, public health entity, entities could use a chatbot to be able to communicate updates, to be able to provide equitable access to information, and um, it might even be, for some clients, a preferred source of access. So thank you all for your time. Thank you, Kelsey. And I will now invite um, Sally Moore from University of Leeds uh, to the microphone to share her research on the feasibility of a nutrition label education intervention with computer gamification to promote learning with year 10 students. Let's see if I can. Alex, do you have suggestions? Do you have mouse access or is it all here? Okay. <laughs> Technology, we love it. That's why we're all here. Thank you. Hello, everybody. My name is Sally Moore. I'm from the University of Leeds in Yorkshire in the UK. I'm a nutritionist and I'm a dietitian, and I lecture in nutrition um, on the nutrition programme. So what brings me here today is to describe the uh, feasibility study um, uh, that featured uh, nutrition label education and gamification. And I really want to start by acknowledging that this is the work of myself and two graduate students at the University of Leeds, Julia and Sophie, who were involved in this work that took place in January this year. I also want to acknowledge um, the Fit Talent Games, who are the software developers behind the, the game. So just to contextualize why we are all here really um, is the problem of obesity levels and poor diets in the UK. Um, and that includes intakes of salt and saturated fat and sugars that are in excess of government recommendations in the UK. Um, and the nutrition label, and here I've shown a multiple traffic light front of pack nutrition label that we use in the UK is a policy tool intended to help consumers make healthier choices and tackle obesity. So I've used my words carefully. It's a policy tool and it's not mandatory in the UK, but many products display it. And it shows on the label here, if you can see in the red, amber, green, the high, medium and low levels of those public health nutrients of concern, fat, uh, saturated fat, sugars and salt. Um, and my own research, my PhD, as well as others, have shown that if we educate on how to use nutrition labels, people often report higher levels of understanding and intended use of that information, which is hopefully good news for public health. 
but also if we introduce things like games and computer games in, in other nutrition education interventions, then that will help people acquire knowledge and skills and behaviours that will also help them eat a healthier diet. So I'm combining this in the project that I'm introducing to you today. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the games development, and this stretches back to 2019. I'm going to talk to you about my favourite part of January this year, which was taking part in the feasibility study at a school in Yorkshire. And then I'll show you a few findings as well. So this is how I first met the game that was then called Fit Food. And it was during a use of technology um, uh, via LinkedIn when the game software developers somehow find, found me and said, would you like to work with us? Um, and they introduced to me this game. Now, if anybody's played Top Trumps with children um, or families, um, this was a virtual version of it where you challenge um, your opponent to um, a duel with cards. So the contest, if you like, is on the top right. This is least sugar per 100 gram. The arrangement or the hand of cards that you're playing is in the middle and the various food products are listed. And on the right-hand side, that was what your card, um, the information and the nutritional content of the product um, on your card showed. So you were able to virtually play the game. So Fit Food um, was the focus at that time of a knowledge transfer partnership funded by the ESRC. And it aimed to bring together um, myself and um, people who were interested in gamification and pedagogy, um, as well as nutrition health organisations. So we worked together with the company who were based in Germany. They were called Fit Talent, as I've mentioned. And we uh, collaborated to optimise the game um, as it was then. My role in it was to align it with public health messaging on um, healthy diets and nutrition labelling, so thinking about traffic lights. And we've got here Arthur Lau and Blaine Parkinson, photographs on number two, and they worked to increase the pedagogic learning power, which was a really great learning for me as well. And we collected intelligence and worked with organisations in the UK, such as NHS Dietitians and the Change for Life public health campaign, as well as a youth organisation called Bite Back 2030, um, to share the uh, project and align it to other apps. Some people might have heard of other apps in the UK, like Food Swaps, um, Sugar Swaps, etc. apps on the mobile phone. So this is um, a contribution in terms of assessing the game, fit, uh, fit food as it was then, in terms of design concepts and player concepts and, and how serious games, um, as we call them, are um, assessed. Um, and I won't dwell on this, just to say that you know, we address a problem at the bottom of the pyramid and work up towards delivering reward and feedback and player competition to enhance learning. So fit food, as it was then, evolved into food decisions. And everybody in this room can access food decisions on their mobile phone. It's freely available to play. Um, and the concept is of it is that you can, without judgment, experience using nutrition labels in a variety of food environments. And so food environments are shown with the three images at the top. It's... Um, uh, for example, a cafe, a restaurant, a supermarket, your home fridge, etc., etc. Um, and players have got a choice of competing with each other, 
as a nutritionist or educator, you can set a group um, challenge as part of an educational intervention, and you can also um, multiplay with each other in the room. Please don't do that now. <laughs> um, the other option that players have is to choose what type of nutrition label you would like. So if you're from the UK, you could maybe choose the multiple traffic lights on the right, and that's accompanied by the mandatory back of pack information. In the middle, we've got um, what is popular in Europe, which is the Nutri-Score system. And on the right, um, this is um, the Nutrition Facts panel as used uh, here. So we use this game as part of the intervention. And the intervention, we work very closely with a school in Yorkshire. So um, I work in Leeds, and this school is about 50 miles away in Doncaster. And both those cities, just to um, contextualize, are about 200 miles north of London. Okay. Um, so the school teacher, who was a food technology head of department and ourselves worked to uh, flesh out the intervention. And the broad aim was to touch with parts of the curriculum that featured healthier food choices and labeling um, and objectively introduce healthier and sustainable eating and we have a eat well guide version of my plate um, in the uk for that and you can see that was delivered with slides we also did some hands-on games um, to use nutrition labels and on the right hand side that is sophie and Julia showing the, the manual game. Um, and then we allowed free play on the food decisions game after introducing it. Um, and as a really embarrassing extra, this was um, uh, Julia. Um, I don't find it embarrassing, she did. But she was doing a, um, a voiceover, a bit of a Preston-like narration on Here's the Game. And she uh, used that to introduce it to the, um, the year 10 14-year-old students as part of this intervention. Um, so the intervention recruited with consent from parents and um, students themselves, all of year 10, so there's about 30 students who gave consent um, in our study design, which was a single group pre-post uh, repeated measures design. We collected questionnaire data online, we used the laptops, and we also collated verbal capture so we went around the room and spoke to students themselves um, and the two outcome measures that we're most interested in today was the knowledge and confidence and use of nutrition labels to make healthier choices and we used some scales um, from adapted from others work and we were also interested in the perceived learning enjoyment of the game in the classroom and just to give you an idea of how we tried to assess knowledge, we used a little bit of a multiple choice um, quiz where we gave two nutrition labels, traffic lights, and we asked students which is the healthiest, which has got less sugar, etc. Um, so when we collated the questionnaire data, we found 20 students had um, pressed submit, and we were able to use data from those questionnaires, half of which were female, about um, most, all of them were aged 14 to 15 years old, that's year 10 in the UK, and 95% um, were of white British ethnicity. Most of them said they played games at least once a week, computer games, with a various um, frequencies. Um, and in terms of was it fun, and um, we asked them this with the emoji scale adapted from others' work, and you can see here in the uh, white and grey that most people agreed with these statements. I want to play the game again. I want to learn more about food. It helps me remember things, etc. 
Some aspects included here touch on students' understanding of sustainability, and by that I mean environmental sustainability concepts of healthy eating as well, which is another part of the um, study not touched on today. Um, so perceptions of the game that we collated verbally as well, I've tried to be um, uh, uh, creative here and show those quotations. Um, I was surprised that students enjoyed the game and they rated it better than PowerPoint, for example, for learning in the classroom. Um, they thought it was cool and quite real world and some of them talked about rendering and the sophisticated um, gameplay um, in comparison to other games um, like um, more popular Minecraft and Roblox games. I really enjoyed talking to the students about that. Levels of confidence on the left and um, to the second left increased pre-post in terms of choosing healthy foods and levels of perceived understanding also increased pre-post um, using nutrition labels. Um, unfortunately, knowledge um, didn't increase pre-post, pre-post, pre-post for each of the three knowledge questions. Um, and in terms of reported use of nutrition labels, um, you can see here in terms of pre and post, the levels of sometimes or always in terms of um, how often do you read labels, and on the bottom, how often are you influenced by nutrition labels when you're purchasing foods, um, increased um, from pre to post. Um, and in conversations with our collaborative research group, one of the take-homes or interpretations of this is, are people able to perceive themselves as label readers? Um, which is an interesting um, critique. Um, my other take on this is it's a social desirability to say that you intend to use labels. So there's two ways to view it. So this was a feasibility study and what was key to making this work was our work from university with the school in Doncaster and the collaboration with the teachers, um, Miss Katie Pine, who's shown um, in the middle on the right here. Um, also really critical was the IT um, person, who was Harry Quatermain, and he's shown on the right-hand side. And a massive acknowledgement for him, getting the game onto the laptops was a big deal. Um, we attracted press attention for this and... Um, um, uh, media attention. So the conclusions today um, are that it is feasible to conduct this working together with the secondary school. It's fun and enjoyable as reported by these young people, the learners, but further development, particularly the knowledge aspect, is warranted um, with potential to impact. I would like to thank all these people from the game developers, Blaine, Blagavesta, and Arthur, and particularly Sophie and Julia, um, whose project uh, this encompassed, and they won a university award for their work here. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Sally, and I'd like to invite um, Dr. Janelle Robinson from Florida A&M to present her work, which I think I'll be able to find. I've learned how to do this. Good afternoon. 
I am Janelle Robinson from, from Florida Agricultural and Mechanical University. The title of my oral abstract is Increasing Engagement in a Nutrition Course Through Development of a Student-Led Documentary about Dieting and Body Image. So uh, in the spring of 2019, I taught um, an intro to nutrition class. We have approximately 60 to 65 students in that class. We had 64 students in that class. My objective is always to increase student engagement, to make sure whatever I'm doing is culturally relevant, um, that it's usually media focused, and that it is catering to different types of learners. And so what we decided to do was to develop a documentary. So the class uh, voted on a nutrition topic that they thought was relevant, um, that could reach people in their uh, peer, of, peer influence. Um, and so they decided on dieting and body image. Um, and then we voted on a topic and the, or a title for the documentary. And the title was Getting Bodied the Natural Way in a World of Butt Shots, Breast Implants, and Tummy Tucks. Um, and so uh, for National Nutrition Month, which was March, our goal was to do a documentary screening in front of the whole campus and community. So for about a month and a half or so, we worked on this documentary. And so we came up with a script and then um, students chose groups that they wanted to be a part of for this thing to work. So we had painters and you see one picture of someone uh, painted or colored. Um, so we had those who had to paint nutrition, uh, body image dieting, um, artwork. We had educational content developers that went through books and went online and found content on body image and dieting that was approved. Um, and that was reputable. Um, we had interviewers who went and asked questions about dieting and body image to faculty and staff and students and those in the community. Um, and then videotaped those interviews. We had music specialists to provide background music throughout the documentary. We had poets who had to develop poems that were um, about dieting and body image. We had readers to read the statistics. Uh, we had a videotaping and editing crew who videotaped a lot of our class sessions where we discussed it um, and videotaped discussions among peers. And then we had a script storyboard team who went through everything after it was done and watched the documentary over and over again um, as I and others edited the documentary. So this was the flyer in order to get people to come to the screening. We had about 100 that showed up to the documentary screen, which was really, really good for us. Um, and so I have some snippets to show you. The documentary is about 30 minutes long, and so I did upload the link so that you can see the full thing, but I wanted to show just a few snippets. I don't know anyone personally, but in um, in music, a lot of art, a lot of female artists do get like butt shots and stuff, and it doesn't look good. It looks kind of deformed, and I heard it like falls off. Depending on what you can afford, it looks very different. So, for people who are willing to like show out the money for a professional thousands of dollars worth of work, then of course you'll have a better end product that looks more natural and more desirable. But if you don't really have the funds to afford it, you're gonna be looking. 
not so great because a lot of it is not like, you know, surgical grade equipment or surgical grade uh, materials. And there's been a lot of like, people call botching incidents. So I haven't seen people who spent under like 5,000 kind of end up looking good, so. Okay. Um, oh, my God, mama got her butt done. No, she just took the, um, the tummy fat and put it in her butt. Okay, okay. So I'm just trying to show snippets of different pieces that different groups brought. Um, so a lot of times they just took quotes from um, articles that talked about uh, the influence of social media on body image and dieting, especially among teens as well as college students. Um, I feel like a lot of it deals with societal pressure and, you know, the ideal body type changes from century to decade to year to year you can even see different fluctuations on the ideal standard of beauty and i feel like you know it's it's definitely due to society and a lot of it is your own personal confidence in what makes you happy so if you're someone who needs to have like the full extent of society telling you you're beautiful then of course you're going to gravitate towards cosmetic procedures so, okay yeah. thank you Aaliyah. It doesn't matter. We can talk about it. Who? Okay. Who's? Oh, her body's real. Okay. So anybody else? I want that Beyonce body, that hottie. Give me her thickness. Give me a menage booty with Megan Good's tummy and some 3060 breast to rest in front of me. Enhance me. Augment me. Whatever you have to do to change me, to make me IG ready. Snap, chat, steady. The camera, filter, alter, crop, lighten, widen the view. And when the perfect camera picks are few, credit can give me butt shots, dots on my tummy for the incision, revisions to the breast to boost and lift, shift the nose, plump the lips, pull the eyes, and herein lies the new me, the perfect me with the perfect body. Nothing, because I love my body. <laughs> Amen. <period. laughs> I get my breasts done. I don't have any, as you can see. Uh, why would you? Because I don't have it. The two things that I would change is like my nose and my boobs. My titties, I ain't got no titties, so I ain't got some bigger titties. We use the word breast. I'm sorry. Breast. <laughs> my breast is this. I'm bigger. <laughs> and my nose, I just don't like the shape of my nose. It made my stomach more hard. You know, it's kind of. A little round, I'll probably make my abs come out a little bit more. That's really it. Like, I, like I would it. definitely change. I mean, I wouldn't say definitely. I'm very comfortable in my skin, but 
So nothing? I don't think I would change anything about myself. Okay. What would you change? I don't think I would change anything. I mean, I've... So those are a few examples of snippets. Like I said, it's about 30 minutes long, so I just tried to highlight some, some of my favorite parts. Okay, so evaluation results. So this was not an attempt to uh, necessarily change behavior. Again, this is engagement. So my goal was to get uh, the class engaged in nutrition. And so uh, out of the 64 students, so when they were in groups, they had group leaders who had to report back participation. Um, and so 62 out of 64 actually participated in the project. Um, they also were graded on this project as well based on their participation. So 97% participation rate. Uh, the biggest thing for me is I got a lot of qualitative data. So I got a lot of feedback from the students on participating in this. Um, and so I just highlighted a few here. Um, learn more aspects relating to the physical changes in the body. Uh, views on how the body is portrayed through the media has changed. Learn the statistics of having cosmetic surgery, like the pros and cons. So they were able to utilize uh, learning and then mass communicate that learning. So just by um, looking up information to paint the pictures, just by looking up information to create the poems, um, just by looking up statistics, they're learning things and then they are creating something to mass communicate it to their peers. And so that alone um, helped change some of the things that they were thinking about body image and dieting. So in conclusion, um, I do believe that media-focused nutrition projects, they're going to provide cultural relevance to, relevance to college students, engage them in non-traditional learning experiences. Um, I did a TEDx talk where I highlighted the documentary and what was done, specifically because in nutrition, um, I'm at an HBCU, and a, a majority of what we see in books and documentaries are white faces. They are not black faces. They are not black voices. And so this gave them an opportunity to hear black voices and to see black voices and to be part of this, this process. And so me helping them to create something that was culturally relevant for them uh, was really exciting for me and really exciting for them. Uh, while student learning was not directly measured, engagement often enhances learning experiences and it can potentially advance the field of nutrition through their ability to mass communicate their ideals from these experiences. These students told me they shared uh, the documentary, they shared the, the, uh, the flyer for the upcoming screening to social media, they shared it in group chats, they shared it with family and friends. It sparked additional discussion on uh, dieting and body images specifically within the black community. And so I thought it was a really, really good way again to engage students um, specifically at this university um, with something where I don't feel like they're often represented within the media. So this is a picture of the class and then the YouTube link is, be is below as well. It is uploaded for your convenience. Thank you. Thank you, Janelle. And um, for our fourth speaker, I'd like to um, invite Dr. Grace Lee from Texas A&M to share with us her research on uh, theory-informed e-health intervention through the Healthy Online Parental Education Study. 
Thomas? Absolutely, thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I'm Grace, and I'm very excited to be here and also share a study that was completed recently by our research team. So just a little bit of background, um, as many guys you know, know in this room, obesity has reached epidemic levels in the U.S. When we look at the data from CDC, 20% um, of children aged from 5 to 19 are obese, so these translated one in every five children. And also when we look at different age um, groups in 2017 and 18, obesity prevalence increases with age from preschoolers to school age children to adolescents. So this study focused on health promotion to prevent obesity during early childhood. Obesity rates are also higher for African-American children, Hispanic children, also Native American children compared to Asian and Caucasian children. And also this is the same for children who are coming from lower income household backgrounds. So in households making below the federal poverty level, obesity rates are around 20%, which is much higher than 8% for you know, children making above the federal poverty level. Um, similarly, children whose parents with high school education or less are more likely to develop obesity or overweight than their counterparts. So these data um, inform us to who to target for our intervention study. We use obesity contextual model framework um, informed by ecological system theory to identify what are the modifiable factors and also mediating factors for, uh, of child obesity. So here in the core, we have three behavior patterns such as dietary intake, physical activity, and center behavior, which can place a child at risk of obesity. So this study focused on these three patterns um, as risk factors. Of course, biological factors such as gender, age, and also different family history can also influence the child development. And these child risk factors can then shape by you know, parenting styles and family characteristics. For example, um, different parenting feeding practices, parental nutritional knowledge, parent-owned dietary intake, physical activity patterns, and also family TV viewing. And all these characteristics are also influenced by you know, our community and society that individuals live. But for this study, um, we focus on parental influences on child behavior outcomes. So this was a pilot randomized controlled trial study, and um, the purpose was to assess the effectiveness, acceptability, and adherence of a theory-based intervention called HOPE in low-income families with toddlers aged between one and three. So we recruited um, study participants in Lubbock. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar, it is in West Texas, in the same place of Texas. And the city had a pretty high food insecurity rate um, at about 16%. This is higher than the national level at you know, 10%. And even 20% of children food are food insecure in Lubbock. And we had five different study recruitment sites, um, including two early head start programs. Also, for those who are not familiar, um, these child care centers are, they, are, they cater towards low-income families with young children. So that's why we work with them, teachers and staff, to recruit people and develop the intervention. 
So our curriculum had eight sessions at one week intervals based on three evidence-based healthy eating, uh, healthy habits, like I mentioned, dietary intake, physical activity, and center, activi uh, center behavior. Um, so how it worked was um, participants receive weekly educational videos with um, weekly activities. For example, activity, um, they set SMART goals. They also wrote digital journals. They also completed bi-weekly online tutorials using fresh fruit and vegetables. So for example, uh, we had to develop our own developed uh, website. Through this website, they receive weekly education videos. So around Halloween week, um, parents completed the video talking about the importance of vegetables for toddlers. And after this video, they also completed online cooking tutorials using fresh fruit and vegetables, and we provided all these ingredients. This was easy and affordable recipe to make. We also provide instructions on age-appropriate task to involve children in the kitchen. So moving on to results, we had a total of 73 parents with toddlers, and they were randomly assigned to either intervention group or control group. Um, on a, the average age of children were 26 months, and more than half of them were female. And as you guys can see, um, our children came from diverse backgrounds, about 37% were biracial, followed by Hispanic. We also measure anthropometric data at baseline, and most of them were healthy weight. And moving on to household information, about 30% of parents completed high school education. Um, also, majority of them were single parents and also had a low income level. So the average yearly income level was, income was about $26 uh, per year. And like I mentioned, we focus on three different behavior patterns, such as dietary intake, uh, physical activity, and center behavior. So in this study, children in the both study groups had less than one cup of fruit and vegetable intake at baseline. And while the control group did not change over eight weeks, intervention group children had significant increases in fruit and vegetable intake at post-intervention. And also, when we look at their physical activity levels, um, they had quite adequate amounts of physical activity level engaged at baseline. Um, we saw significant increases in these levels only within the intervention group children. And for sedentary activity, we also measure screen time. Um, as you guys can see the number in the table, um, they had an exceeded amount of uh, spent in sedentary activity and screen time at baseline. And we all saw, we saw the significant decreases in such activities within the intervention group. We also measure changes in parental psychosocial attributes, um, such as nutritional knowledge, attitude to a healthy lifestyle, self-efficacy around feeding, and comprehensive feeding practices. Um, while we did not see any changes in nutrition knowledge levels among parents, we saw significant improvements in their attitudes self-efficacy and comprehensive feeding practices. And these changes in self-efficacy and comprehensive feeding practices remain significant when compared to the control group. We also monitored um, how much people watch the videos entirely, referred as average percentage view. Um, the average percentage view was 80%, and according to the YouTube analytics, um, the videos were performing well and effective. We also measured um, the view count to track engagement. 
So a total of 13 videos yielded more than 500 view counts. So each video was viewed um, 40 times on average. And since this was a pilot study, we also conducted exit interview with intervention group parents. Um, we asked their opinions more in detail, and they said watching videos was really helpful, especially learning about child nutrition using online modality was extremely helpful um, in terms of flexibility and convenience. And many parents commented that they were able to rewatch it and study while the child went to sleep to internalize the knowledge. Also, the cooking tutorials and receiving these healthy foods, um, these were the most liked element by parents. It seemed that providing these recipes and healthy foods expand their cooking ideas and also reinforce their motivation for behavior changes. Um, since this was a pilot study, we plan to conduct a full testing with a follow-up assessment in the near future. But for more information, I include my contact information here. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Grace. And I'd like to invite our um, four presenters to come up. And those of you who have questions, there's a microphone here in the center aisle. Is this one on two? Can we pass this one along first? Yeah. All right. Don't be shy. All right, then I'll start out with a question. I've got so many questions. Those of you who know me, I'm sure are unsurprised. Um, one of the things that we often see with technology and e um, interventions is you spend a lot of resources and time developing a technology and then it's sometimes difficult to get people to actually go open that technology. So I'd love to hear from each of you um, strategies that you, this is sort of a scalability question, obviously when you're in a setting where um, you're, you're there opening it for people, that's one thing, but what are your ideas about how to push uh, users to these high quality evidence-based um, technologies? Uh, um, so I'll just pass the mic along. Uh, I getting them involved in the development at the beginning. Um, this was actually something that I didn't speak about in our presentation, however, something that we found was that part, uh, participants uh, really liked Maya and the chatbot. However, I mentioned that they hadn't interacted with her before. And one of the things that several participants had said was that they wished that she would actually advertise herself so that people were able to understand that she was more than just something to go connect to somebody. So being able to communicate what it is and being able to promote itself uh, can also encourage use. Um, thanks. I, I, for me, it was about um, freely available app software and also within our study with the Nutrition Label Education game, the ability to get the game on mobile phones, which was what many of the participants wanted. They wanted to hang around outside the school gates and play this game, which is surprising. Um, but that was another um, access issue for them, is that device-specific mm -hmm. um, request. 
We actually um, built our strategies based on evidence from a systematic review, and some of the strategies were, you know, sending reminder text messages, simple as you know it sounds, and also interactions um, between the participants. They want to have a community. Also, they want to have interaction with the investigator too. So having multiple avenues to form that community um, sense of community. Hi, my name is Belen. I work for the Food Bank in Raleigh. Um, and what I was thinking about when you all pre were presenting was something um, recent that came up with the National Eating Disorder Association, the chat bot that they had put in. I don't know if you all have any comments on that chat bot or like, I think it could be applied to all sorts of e-learning technology, but I think there was a lot of um, people who had some harmful interactions with that one. Um, so I don't know if you have comments, because there's, there seem to be a lot of benefits with the e-learning, but also just wondering about the other side. Are you familiar with uh, I am familiar, but um, I don't know. Do you want to get, you might be more well-versed in giving a little background for anyone that may not, or just, OK. All right, so um, okay, trying to. So I think there's a bit of a difference between the eating disorder chatbot and the Maya WIC chatbot. So Maya, as I mentioned earlier, is a software-based chatbot as opposed to an artificial intelligence chatbot. So this one is pre-programmed and pre-screened by the WIC program to be able to reply those answers. And also, our studies have shown, or research has shown that it is more, it's more effective to be complementary as opposed to just a primary source of gaining nutrition information. So it's not a tool to replace anybody uh, as opposed to uh, what what happened yeah, with the eating. They just shut their, uh, so the eating disorder chatbot had just shut down their hotline and completely moved it to an artificial intelligence chatbot. And Maya does not do that. And, <laughs> and um, I would promote something called a user-centered design, which gains information from participants uh, so that you're able to be able to meet the needs of your demographic. Fantastic. Are there other questions from the audience? I am. I really enjoyed all of the presentations a lot. I, I wanted to ask just a little bit about resources um, necessary to do some of these things, specifically the video, um, which was so incredibly interesting. Um, did did you have additional resources available to your class to do that? Did you have a budget? Were the students able to come up with that? And um, I, I know like what was freely accessible with the the label. Um, uh, game also, but it seems just kind of like if we we always think if we have all the resources in the world, but what resources did you have? And if you had more, what would you want? Maybe we were magicians. We had nothing, and we made something out of nothing. <laughs> no, we we really didn't. No, they videotaped everything with their iPhones. They sent the videos to me in what MP4, and I uploaded the videos. 
Um, there was a software, Wondershare, Wonder something, some type of software that was used to pull them all together and to, to put everything together. But other than that, um, just, yeah, it was just their phones that were used, so. Thank you. Yeah, that, it was a clever collaboration, really, with um, a company who are software developers who also wanted to um, branch out into training and upskilling people via learning and gamification. So there was a commercial kind of push and pull on that, as well as an academic research um, input. So yeah, that was a the meeting of resources there, and of course we got funding to do it as well. But the the ambition, and, will, and it will always be the ambition, is to make the game freely available. It will never be behind a paywall. Yeah. For resources, um, I will be honest. We don't. We didn't have much resources because you know we had to use the funding that we had. Um, we developed everything from scratch, but. If we could have resources, um, I think I would like to maybe collaborate with the IT people in the future. And also, if more resources, we would, you know, maybe have access to mobile phones and so on, so that we can distribute among participants in case they don't have mobile phone to watch the videos. Um, and, and from the chatbot standpoint, in terms of resources, so. Um, well, and more specifically, WIC. WIC, with the fact that it is moving towards modernization and promoting tech, uh, technology innovations, there is a lot of grant money out there. Uh, our, my project was funded by the uh, USDA Special Innovations Grant. Um, but there's also the American Rescue Plan that has over $390 million allocated to be used before 2024. So uh, there are resources out there to be able to modernize with. Last chance. All right, well with that, I'd like to thank our fantastic speakers. Congratulations on your um, wonderful, really impressive research programs and best of luck. Thank you all for joining us. Enjoy the rest of the conference.
Welcome everybody and thank you for joining us today at this session. Before we begin, we kindly request that you turn off your cell phones to minimize any distractions. And to make the most of this event, we highly encourage you to utilize the conference app. It grants you access to all the conference functions and keeps you updated with the latest updates and announcements. If you need to find it, um, you can get the app through the QR code on the back of your um, lanyard. And don't forget to join the conversation and share your experiences at this session or the conference by using the hashtag SNEB2023 on social media. And our presenters will be available to address any questions you may have following the presentation. And now, without further ado, let's invite our session moderator and speakers to the stage. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Caitlin Kanaki. I am a senior program lead for evaluation at the University of Illinois Extension, including um, our SNAP education program, which our presentation today, Asset-Based Community Nutrition Education, Aligning Program and Partner Efforts for Equity-Centered Nutrition and Food Systems Transformation. Um, this comes from our SNAP education program. So today, uh, we have a really good treat. We have four awesome speakers, and I hope that you really enjoy what they have to share. We have Jennifer McCaffrey, who is the Assistant Dean for the Family of Consumer Sciences programs at University of Illinois Extension. In her position, she focuses on health and family well-being by providing statewide leadership for extension programs in nutrition, family, relationships, and personal finance. She loves the opportunity to work collaboratively with community partners to address health issues and is passionate about building systems to help Illinois residents live a healthy lifestyle. Next, we'll have Brenda Wolford, who is a senior associate in Alterum's community health practice area. Ms. Wolford has worked on SNAP evaluation since 2013, leading evaluation activities and providing technical assistance to more than 10 different states. She provides management, research, and technical support to several Alterum projects, including lead roles in planning, conducting, and analyzing SNAP-Ed social marketing evaluations and PSC change strategies. Our next presenter is Dale Kerr. She believes that collaboration is critical to the work she does in the community. She brings her past military health career that provided her an opportunity to live abroad learning about different cultures to her 21-year career with Extension in the SNAP-Ed program. The experience has allowed her to collaborate with many organizations such as healthcare, faith-based, schools, pantries, and park districts. And our final presenter is gonna be joining us virtually, so this is gonna be really fun. Um, Ms. Jeannie Angs. Uh, she is a Regional Director of Community Health for Advocate Aurora Health. She directs community health assessment, program development, and impact measurement, focusing on interventions to improve health equity. 
Prior to joining AAH, Ms. Ng was the director of a federally qualified health center in Lake County, providing care to more than 40,000 underserved patients. In her leadership, the organization achieved certification through the Joint Commission as a patient-centered medical home and opened Lake County's first school-based health center. All right, so three objectives today. Describe the program design of multi-level, multi-component nutrition education programs using a community-wide approach. Next, we'll describe methods for assessing participant-level impact of community-wide, multi-level, multi-component interventions, and identify methods to assess alignment of programs and partners with multi-level, multi-component nutrition education programs using a community-wide approach. So, without further ado, introduce our first speaker, Jen McCaffrey. All right, thanks, Caitlin. So I'm going to bring us into the presentation today to talk a little bit about how we got here, and then I'll let them talk about uh, where we're going. Uh, so we originally started this journey about 2012 when the SNAP-Ed guidance uh, put out that SNAP-Ed programs should focus on nutrition education for obesity prevention. So we set out to design our SNAP-Ed intervention using evidence-based strategies that would look to eventually, I say eventually because given the slide up there, uh, prevent obesity. So as many of us know, obesity, you just can't snap your fingers and have strategies and it's solved, right? And so around that time or shortly after, obesity started to be called a wicked problem because there was so many components that went into it that played to addressing the outcome. And so I love this map. Um, it's kind of a mapping model where you uh, write all the factors that go into addressing the problem. And if you would like to read uh, more about that, uh, there's sources up there for you. So we started looking at the models and uh, revamping our intervention uh, to address this. This was right about the time that the dietary guidelines first published the social ecological model as part of the dietary guidelines. And so this just fueled our fire uh, to use the social ecological model in our intervention. And as we all probably know, the social ecological model uh, highlights how the individual's behavior is not only influenced by interventions directly to that individual, but also at components around that individual, such as their social network, organizations, factors in the community, and policies. And so for many of us that work in SNAP-Ed or in nutrition education, we describe now our work as direct education to the individual or direct intervention to the individual or through policy systems and environment or PSE. Um, and so you have to slow down when you say that, otherwise people are like, what are you talking about, PSE? Um, so that queued up our intervention to look at multi-level, multi-component settings. 
Um, and now a lot of people call those interventions whole of the community. Um, we like to use the multi-level, multi-component, multi-mode, um, but sometimes for short in the literature you might find it as whole of the community. So here we were, uh, we had our model, and but the question still remained, can we do this in SNAP-Ed? This had all been done in interventions that were more in the research-based world. Um, so can this be done in community-based settings? So we set out to try. Um, so this was um, our, so this is kind of what it looks like for us in Illinois. And the first step that we took to design our multi-level, multi-component, multi-mode uh, intervention was to identify network communities. That's what we call them. And so we've had lots of discussions over the years, but basically a network is a concentration where your intended audience lives. So it's kind of a geographic designation. And so within this network, we have the concentration of our target audience. So for us in Illinois, that's SNAP eligible women and their children. And so we mapped out where there were higher concentrations of uh, individuals in their communities. And then we can set up patterns, or now we call it hubs and spokes. But it's basically where people go about their daily lives. And so where they live, work, play, etc., learn. And so within that geographic hub, and there may be spokes that flow into that hub. So within this network, we list out all the, I call it, all the places and spaces where our families may be. Um, so organizational partners, assets, et cetera. And the goal of this is to maximize the dose that that individual and family receives from the concentration of strategies that we have within that network. And so we know all the places and spaces generally that people will be. And so then we set out to partner with those partners, organizations, settings to design those activities or have those activities implemented that are both directed at the individual as well as in the policy system environment space. Um, Unlike the studies, um, which I forgot to mention those, we were influenced by Shape Up Somerville and some of the CORD studies. So unlike those studies, we have an organic uh, relationship. So it relies strictly on our partner's readiness and the other assets that are in the community. Um, so it relies a lot on the collective. Um, a lot of people use the term collective impact um, of what's going on in the community and the synergies that can happen across the collective. So no one of these communities are the same. Um, they all rely on the assets and the partnerships that are in those communities. So what does this look like? Um, in day to day. So we like to use a story um, of how SNAP-Ed influences a family across their everyday life. Uh, so we have Sonia, a fictional character that we have developed, but all of these examples of how SNAP-Ed can influence Sonia and her family 
are real. So I'll just take a few minutes just to walk you through a day in the life of Sonia and how she interacts with SNAP-Ed. So this morning, Sonia had a doctor's appointment and I'm gonna speed up this story so you'll have to follow along. But um, so Sonia went to her doctor's appointment and her doctor prescribed her uh, prescription produce. Um, and this doctor happened to partner with SNAP-Ed and be trained on how to implement and screen for prescription um, produce for food insecurity and give out prescription produce. So this well-trained physician had partnered with SNAP-Ed and gave Sonia her prescription produce. Uh, Sonia left uh, her appointment and out in the parking lot was a farmer's market that the community had put together with the help of their SNAP-Ed partner. So Sonia stopped by the uh, farmer's market in the parking lot, uh, redeemed her prescription produce. She also stopped by the Eat, Move, Save booth, the Illinois SNAP-Ed nutrition education that was there, and picked up a few recipes on how to prepare that produce that she picked up. On her way home on the bus line, uh, Sonia was standing there with her cell phone and she saw a poster for Fine Food Illinois. And she thought, well, I could really, uh, you know, I need food for me and my family. Um, so I, she scanned the QR code and scanned what was on the Fine Food Illinois. And she actually found a grocery store that was closer to her house that accepted a SNAP EBT. Um, and she planned to stop there. Uh, turns out, Fine Food Illinois was developed by SNAP-Ed in Illinois. Um, on her way home, uh, she uh, stopped by the pantry to pick up a few things that complemented the produce that she picked up at the, her doctor's visit. This pantry happened to take a training from SNAP-Ed a few months earlier, and they have already transformed their pantry to be a shopping-style pantry. So Sonia was easily able to navigate uh, the pantry and pick out the things that she could really use for her and her family. Lo and behold, on the shelf, there was some recipe cards for the things that she could pick up, and those things were also provided by the SNAP-Ed partners. Once she got home, um, her children were there, and her children were very eager to tell her about the Organ Wise Guys program that came to her school. Turns out, Organ Wise Guys is delivered by SNAP-Ed in Illinois. Um, and she, uh, her and her children chatted about what they learned um, from healthy eating and the recipe that her child tried that day in the class. Uh, her teenage son came home and was very excited to talk about lunch. Turns out that her son's lunchroom uh, has a share table, and he was able to pick up a few, a uh, couple of things off that share table today because he is a growing teenager and was very hungry at lunch. This share table was uh, brought to the school in partnership with the, her, the snap egg collaborators in the community who had uh, gone through a training and learned how to implement the share table at uh, the school. So I'll stop there. The story can go on and on about gardening and produce and various things, uh, but for the sake of time, uh, hopefully you get the picture as someone goes through the day all the different ways that they can interact with SNAP-Ed. I think I forgot to tell you that she signed up for the texting program and all. <laughs> 
many, many different ways. As I said, the story could go on. So one of the uh, interesting things that we've encountered is looking at how to evaluate uh, the SNAP-ED multi-mode, multi-component, multi-setting. And we have made uh, many attempts. We were fortunate enough to receive some funding through the Nutrition Education Centers of Excellence grants. I don't know if any of you uh, participated in those around 2016, but that helped dip our toe into the water of evaluating this network model. Uh, so our first attempt really was looking at how do the partners across the community know each other? Um, do they know that each other exists? Do they know that they're working on obesity prevention strategies? And are they collaborating? So we conducted a community network analysis, which is a formal thing. So if you want to know about the ins and outs of community network analysis, I'd be happy to share, or we have a couple of publications on that. And we found that our partners had medium, I'll just describe it as medium level uh, connectedness. So we knew that we had some work to do. Um, in this same study, uh, we also tried to determine if our SNAP-ED participants were actually receiving the intervention in the multi-layer, multi-component setting. Um, so I'm not gonna talk a lot about that, but the community partner and the community analysis is where we will build on for where our work is headed in the future. So as you can imagine with any research, uh, questions remained. Uh, we had uh, questions about what was the actual dose that our participants were receiving, not only at the individual level, but across the community. How many community partners are actually receiving and partnering with us uh, in the SNAP-ED intervention? So cue up what we have been working on lately. Uh, so we just completed a three-year evaluation, so I would say round two of our network analysis, and we had four parts of this three-year evaluation. So we looked at our networks, so all the networks that we have across the state, so there's about 80 of them, and we uh, developed a method where we could tier them um, to look at, that was like the dose of nutrition education or our SNAP-ED intervention across the 80 networks that we had. And then uh, we looked at the impact at the individual. And then we also did a round two of uh, talking to our partners in our network and classifying what level of obesity prevention they were working at. Part four was a return on investment. So today we're gonna primarily focus on part one and part three, but if you're interested in any of the components, uh, we do have information at the end on how you can access them. So I will turn it over to Brenda to get us into the evaluation methods that we used. Thank you, Jennifer. Um, and as Caitlin mentioned in the beginning, I work for Altarum. We are an exter external evaluator for Illinois SNAP-Ed. And I'm going to walk through just the various methodologies, approaches we use to evaluate the community network approach that Jennifer just described. Our first step was to develop this ranking and tiering of the uh, networks um, to look at the influence of 
support obesity prevention in eligible communities. So the purpose of this was to understand similarities and differences between the networks and the factors that implement, um, that impact the outcomes of the SNAP-Ed eligible populations. <clears throat> so networks were assessed using external and internal program indicators, as you can see here on the, the right of the slide. We looked at, um, the networks were ranked from highest to lowest in terms of the quantity of obesity prevention supports. And they were assigned into one of three tiers. So you can see that, or well, our tier one networks had the, the highest amount of obesity prevention supports, and the tier threes had the lowest amounts, uh, or fewer supports. Um, so we used indicators you can see on the right here uh, to create the, the ranking and tiering method. We looked at SNAP-Ed programming, direct education, indirect education, PSC strategies, and that type of thing that went into the ranking and tiering. But we also looked at external indicators, such as partnerships and coalitions, the presence of those within the community networks, and some assets in the community, such as presence of a hospital needs assessment or a local health assessment. So the ranking and tiering really did serve two purposes. The first was for program planning, and the SNAP-Ed team here was able to use the ranking and tiering to direct their social marketing campaign messages. So the community networks that were sort of at the bottom of the tier received more, a higher dosage of the, the social marketing campaign messages. And then for our purposes for evaluation, we sampled the um, networks across the three tiers um, who were we had them participate in the network evaluation and we looked at differences across tiers and networks through the evaluation. So after developing these tiers, we used the tiers to help inform the samples for parts two and three of the evaluation. So I'm next I'm going to quickly discuss part two, which was to determine the impact on individuals. So to assess the impact at the individual level, we did survey Illinois residents with lower incomes, and the purpose was to understand how SNAP-Ed impacts eligible adults living within these networks. We collected surveys from lower income residents at two time points. You can see we did a baseline survey in September of 2021, and then six months later we did a follow-up survey. These were all done online. And the surveys asked questions about the, or the individuals receiving of SNAP-Ed or recognition of SNAP-Ed, healthy behavior actions, fruit and vegetable consumption, and physical activity. So next I'm going to talk about part three of our evaluation, and this was to characterize the community networks by conducting a partner and coalition assessment. So to understand the depth and value of how partnerships and coalitions contribute to SNAP-Ed, we did a multi-component partnership and coalitions assessment, and the purpose was to understand how SNAP-Ed and partners contribute to obesity prevention within the same community. So this, this assessment had four parts. The first one was a network partner analysis, and I'll explain that on the next slide. We did a partner survey, partner interviews, and staff focus groups in a br very brief survey of staff. So the first part was in, uh, to analyze partner alignment. So the, the staff, local staff who were working within those networks that we sampled for this evaluation, they were asked to complete an assessment that identified all of the partners and coalitions having a role in obesity prevention within their networks. 
and they were then they categorized their partners as either direct, parallel, or assets. So the direct partners, as you would imagine, worked directly with SNAP-Ed, and the parallel partners worked on obesity prevention strategies within those community networks, but they were independent of SNAP-Ed. And the assets were present within the network, but they did not work on obesity prevention strategies. They, did, they do contribute to SNAP-Ed outcomes just by the nature of the, their organization or purpose, so something might be a grocery store. An example would be a grocery store. This information was compiled and analyzed then to determine the distribution and services um, across the networks and if there was differences across networks and within those partner organizations. So as you can imagine, this was a very, it was a big undertaking and Caitlin worked very closely with her staff on this and it took quite a bit of effort for them to complete. But then uh, that, that list of partners that we then had access to, we could use for the, the other parts of this assessment. <clears throat> so we did want to get local SNAP-Ed staff uh, to gather their perspectives and they participated in focus groups with us to uh, determine how partnerships and coalitions are contributing to broad community-wide changes and policy implementation, and this was all relative to healthy eating, physical activity, food access, and obesity prevention, and we were interested in, in what was going on both with and without SNAP-Ed. We also asked staff to complete a very brief survey, and this was just to capture information, such as their job role and their length of employment. Next, we developed a partner survey, uh, a partner and coalition survey, and this was to determine how local organizations and um, coalitions contribute to healthy eating, active living, and food access. And there was a big emphasis on this step on this partner alignment within, within the community networks. We also captured those partners, their perceived influence on healthy eating, active living, and food access, and their current motivation and capacity and any future plans that they might have. All of the partners, as I mentioned uh, a minute ago, all of the partners who we identified through that alignment process, they were invited to take this survey. And then lastly, a subset of those partners who did take the survey were invited to participate in some interviews with us, and this was just to get further information about um, how they are contributing to community-wide change and policy implementation, again, relative to healthy eating, active living, food access. And this was both, again, trying to understand how they were doing that with and without SNAP-Ed. <clears throat> so with that, I'm going to pass this over to Dale to talk more about collaboration. Thank you, Brenda. So this is the fun part. This is the part where we get to share how we actually implement some of the things that has been discussed here today. Jeannie, my colleague, will be coming on virtually via, um, through Zoom or the system. Okay, so when I'm working with partners, I start to take a look at what do they have that they're working on? Are, do we have a mutual interest? Do we have shared values? Do we have the capacity to work? Many of you, if you're working with partners in your communities, probably do the same things, and you have to start to look at, if a partner comes to me, do I have the capacity to support them? Because when you start working with partners, you have to start building that trust. And I'm very fortunate that me and Jeannie um, Ong, who's coming on in a minute, we've worked together 
I said 10, she says 15. I don't know, it's just been fun. We've worked together on a lot of different collaboratives, as you're gonna see, and it's just really nice to have a partner that's kind of in the community doing similar things, and you can bounce ideas off and share, and then have those wonderful results in the end. So kind of going back to our framework of how we work in the SNAP-Ed unit in the office, you have community workers in Illinois that are, do our direct ed peer-to-peer. -peer. They kind of work with those individual um, SNAP-Ed audiences, WIC. And then you have your interpersonal portion where we have a social network, where we kind of get to know different partners, different agencies. And, we, and that's where the, the community workers are still working. But then you get to the organizational part. They're still working in the schools. But when we start to work with the organizations such as pantry managers, um, teachers, um, anybody, faculty that probably don't qualify for SNAP-Ed, that's where the PSC staff comes in. We start to work with them hand in hand. But then we kind of work on that community. What can we change the framework with our coalitions? Can we put in a walkable um, area to get to a playground? Or can we do a walking school bus is the word I was looking for. Um, and then you might be looking at policy in the food pantry. Um, maybe you want to have healthier food donations. And so you kind of work with that pantry to make sure that some of the food that's coming in or that the staff that is working in the pantry isn't um, being, uh, if they're sick, they don't show up. And they show up when they're healthy. So that's kind of our framework. It's that sociological model that we kind of use. And we kind of work as a team. I'm fortunate to have at least uh, two community workers in one unit with a program coordinator, and then in my other unit, we have three or four with a program coordinator. So here's one of my local offices, but here's the mission. So when I'm working with partners and stuff, I like to kind of share what our mission is so that they can see what we're working on as a in the University of Illinois Extension. You know, I have other partners in my office, such as 4-H, small farms and food systems, horticulture, um, the master gardeners, they're all there too to help support that food access work and other things that are going on or working with the youth in the schools. I also like to let people know when we're in coalitions or having meetings and partners that we're out here to find out what the needs of the community are and bring them back to the campus, maybe to evaluate, to research, to do something with. And then we're also there to take the information that's been written and provided by our, our state teams. We bring it out to the local, unit, uh, local community to implement those SNAP-Ed programs. And at this point, I'm going to ask Jeannie to come on. And hopefully you can see me there. Hello, everybody. Uh, Jeannie Ong with Advocate Healthcare, and uh, we are a large health system based in uh, both Illinois and Wisconsin and also in the southeastern part of uh, the United States. So um, one, right here on this slide is our Advocate Healthcare Community Strategy. So one of the things that I wanted to um, start with is to just let you know that you know, we approached our work with community partners in much the same way that was described um, by, by our earlier speakers. We go forth in, before we start looking for a partner and to guide our work, we also do an environmental scan. 
And um, part of that environmental scan is to divide, is to identify partners who really have some of the same principles guiding their work. Um, and in here, you can kind of, I want to highlight just a few um, that really aligned directly with Illinois Extension. Um, when we did that environmental scan, we could see there was direct alignment um, very early on. So for instance, our approach is rooted in improving health equity in advocate healthcare. Obviously, that is one of the, the um, key values uh, of the Illinois Extension. We're very much grounded in data. We build our initiatives to address the needs identified in our uh, comprehensive community health needs assessment. So every hospital system that is a nonprofit is required to do a full assessment of their service area every three years. And then we build an implementation plan uh, from the results of that assessment. Uh, you heard earlier that um, there was a lot of focus on particular geographies or populations uh, of uh, high, uh, high need communities. And we, we rank our communities really using a lot of quantitative and qualitative data um, and identify those with the you know, the highest needs in terms of their socioeconomic status. Uh, and those are the ones that we want to invest our time, energy, and funding in. We use that public health approach, and that means that we want to work upstream at, uh, on the drivers of health as much as possible. And then as the extension, we track our metrics over time to measure the impact. Next slide. So collaboration is really um, the key underpinning of our approach to community health as a health system. As we were beginning to build out our, our three-year community health improvement strategy, um, we identified other active initiatives that were addressing obesity prevention. So obesity was selected by our advisory council at the hospitals in both uh, Lake and McHenry County. And for those of you, I didn't uh, describe this, for those of you that aren't familiar with the geography around Chicago, Lake and McHenry counties are the two northern counties that are uh, directly north of the city of Chicago and go all the way up to along the lakefront of, up to uh, the Wisconsin border. So we um, began to um, focus on, uh, on those um, active initiatives to see who else was really working in this space partially because we did not want to duplicate efforts. We wanted to make sure that we were using our resources, which are limited as everyone else's, uh, and wanted to make sure that we could really um, focus where the need is, but also where others weren't already working. Um, when we did this, we found that both of us were implementing evidence-based or evidence-informed programs. Uh, we both were committed to working with community members to build our approaches from the ground up. So really a value of um, doing this work is that you it's organic, it's a bit organic and you want to make sure that it is driven by the community and for the community, that you aren't coming in as any resource agency and just applying a template, but instead you give you, you have a resource approach or a resourced approach, an evidenced approach, but you really tailor that to the local community and listen to the need, the uh, the voice of the community members to drive how you shape it. Also, we found that both 
agencies are focused on um, policy systems and environment. And I've been so pleased to be able to work with uh, Dale over the last couple of years, particularly because she has a very much longer runway of working with policy system and environment changes. And as a health system, we're kind of coming into the PSE space a little bit um, around now, whereas in the past, we kind of had a history of just evidence-based programming. So I'm learning a lot from her. And I think that is another value of a community partnership is that you really get to learn from one another. Next slide. So we wanted to share a few examples of some of the kind of, of work we've done together, uh, particularly looking here at some of the shared coalitions. Through our relationships over the years, we've um, served together on many of the same coalitions. And then more recently, we've added another level of collaboration to our relationship. So in both Lake and McHenry County, we both had the honor to serve on the steering committees uh, for the community health improvement plans of the local health departments and the and many of the action teams. And the action teams is where the work gets done. You know, that is those are the multi-stakeholder groups where you try to get representatives of all, a lot of the key industry and other um, organizations working in the same space but from a different perspective to work on a problem together. And um, we discovered that, um, as we discovered that uh, Extension is a trusted resource in obesity prevention, we then uh, invited them to become a member of our hospital advisory committee at Advocate Good Shepherd Hospital. And that is a hospital that actually serves both Lake and McHenry County. And on the other side, I was also invited by the Extension Service to recently become a member of the Illinois Extension Advisory Council for those two counties. And so I think this really is a good example of how, how our relationship over several years as colleague organizations has now uh, really reached the next level where we uh, are, are very much valued as resources to one another's organizations and are in uh, positions of leadership to help shape the work. Next slide. So the last portion of today is we're going to drill down into some key examples of the coalition work we've done together. Next slide. You probably are very familiar, many of you in the audience, with Go Knapsack. Um, and we um, collaborated together uh, in 2018 on the Go Knapsack program. And, um, this really started out by both of us working uh, individually in, with early childhood centers to, um, to do the assessment process and to help advise them on changes in policy practices, systems, and environments that they uh, could do to really improve healthy um, access to healthy food for the young children. Um, but as we implemented, we really wanted to make sure that we were coordinating and were, were um, again, sharing best practices and identifying key barriers. We, we, also, we actually found as we began coordinating our work and collaborating um, that many of us, many of the uh, child, early childhood education centers were experiencing some of the same problems and there were opportunities for us to join some of those uh, centers together to share or brainstorm or problem solve how we could overcome some of the same barriers we were experiencing and um, really coordinate the work. 
So both working with the same exact program with different pot, with different um, areas of need in the same two counties, but making sure that we were coordinating and collaborating. And for me, ultimately, this ended up being a wonderful example of collective impact because the impact was certainly larger, uh, and we we could organically shape the initiatives and shape the work together um, to make it responsive to the community. Next. This is a current example and very proud of this program. Advocate Condell Medical Center in Lake County currently runs a mobile food pantry called RX Mobile Food Pantry. And this is a partnership with a local church. It started out there, they are our host, a local Catholic church. Uh, it's right in the heart of Lake Villa where there is a high level of food insecurity, additional uh, partners early on came, that came to the table and joined us were the uh, local township and then the Northern Illinois Food Bank, which is a wonderful partner and is the uh, pro provides our food. This is a special pantry and it brings fresh fruit and vegetables, meat, milk, and eggs to these Lake Villa residents every two weeks um, where there, like I said, there's a very high rate of food insecurity. And I will say one of the things to mention here too is we identified some pockets of food insecurity that were um, we were able to drill down in through looking at data that we have available in community health at, the, at our health system, um, looking at census tract analysis. If you looked only at the zip code level in this area, you really would miss some of the pockets of poverty and the pockets of food insecurity that exist. And that really guided where we looked for partners to locate this access point. So Illinois Extension SNAP-Ed is a, is a relatively new addition to our partnership. And we're so thrilled because they have brought, um, well, they, were, they donated a wonderful sign that helped guide some of our neighbors to get to us, which was uh, very, very thankful for that. But more importantly, they have been coming to provide healthy recipes and food samples of the food that we are we are giving out each day at the uh, food pantry and that has been so well received by the neighbors coming to our pantry and um, we are continuing this relationship and have found that it's um it's you know, this added education from experts in snap ed is something that we don't really have in our community health team. So this helps us to really um, up our game in this program and I think um, makes it uh, definitely more effective and certainly um, more well-received by our neighbors. So Dale is going to share a couple of additional examples. Thanks, Jeannie. So this Avon Cares pan Food Pantry, I received a call and I was asked if I could help evaluate the food pantry and make sure that there was healthy food provided at the food pantry because Condell, Health, Condell Hospital was providing the diabetes training and then they were going to do this RX prescription, but they wanted to make sure that as they got the food to the clients that there would be a process that people would find healthier options too. So we went and did a NEFPAT assessment then I worked with the food pantry manager and assisted her to make sure that all the healthy food was at eye level, unhealthy food in different places, put nudge signs, made the, the environment warm and welcoming, had good messaging throughout the pantry. 
they provided, Condell provided this prescription that gave a box of fresh fruits and vegetables that the Northern Illinois Food Bank brought up to the pantry. So this was a pantry that was um, in need of just some simple tweaks here and there on making it healthy. So that was fun to work with. Um, another thing that we, Jeannie mentioned early on, is some of the action teams that we belong to. So Jeannie and myself were on this Eat Well action team. And we had a school nurse, we had a Rush Med uh, University professor, we had um, a resident, I'm trying to think of all, we, Lake County Health was a part of the team. There was several different identities. But what we did is we first got together and we looked for evidence-based curricula that we thought we would provide to the county areas where SNAPED is at and to try to see if we can lower the obesity. We decided that we would pick Faithful Families out of North Chicago, that, that curriculum, and we piloted three of the churches. After we did this initial pilot, we kind of got the feedback from the residents or from the participants, and their comments were, this is great information, but when we're going to food pantries, we're not able to capture healthy food. So the team got back together, and we decided that we would then launch a study to find out what the barriers were or the opportunities or challenges that we could find out for why the residents weren't getting the proper nutrition that they wanted from the pantries. We did this in Lake County and got the results. Here's a, a published article that went up to the Feeding Illinois website. You can read it at your leisure. Um, but then we also took it a step further and studied all of the state food pantries, thanks to Caitlin and her evaluation team. And I think if Cassandra's in here, she is one of our lead. Is she there? There she is. So she was one of our lead people to help us with this. So um, it was really exciting and fun to kind of meet with the food pantry managers. They were excited because they knew that the information was confidential. So they were willing to give us the information that we needed. And then they're able to get some changes, not only in our own county, but in other state, uh, throughout the state. But I know our county, I don't hear anyone saying, isn't any food better than no food anymore? And that was something that was really bothering me. And the other thing that was really bothering me is people weren't asking, do you have food allergies? Nobody was asking those questions. So because of this um, research and study, we were able to make some really meaningful changes, I'm happy to say. And we just had an article published. And if you go visit Ms. Cassandra tomorrow, you'll see the poster and some of our findings. Thank you so much. I'm going to turn it back over to Caitlin, though. So as you can see, uh, hopefully from the examples, if you dream it, it will come. And so Dale and Jeannie highlighted just uh, two of our counties, and I think, Dale, do you have five you, or networks? 
five networks. So within Dale's two counties, she has five networks. So that's kind of how it plays out. And I told you earlier, we have 80 networks across the state. So kind of compound what Dale did and talked about by 80. And you can imagine we have a lot going on. But hopefully we highlighted for you that um, it takes a village and it just doesn't happen in a vacuum. Um, Dale was our first educator we hired for PSE, and she's still with us um, 10 years later. Um, but you can see what some of what can come in 10 years of really concentrating efforts. And so if you want to read more about the results, I know we were results light and examples heavy uh, in this presentation, um, but if you want to read more about the results, we have our infographic up here, and then all of our full reports, if you scan the QR code, you can get access to our full reports. And I know I'm stealing some of Caitlin's thunder, so I'm going to turn it over to Caitlin to finish this out and moderate our questions. Um, so as Jen said, if you follow the QR code, it'll take you to the results page from our three-year evaluation study that we did. Um, the, I'm going to warn you, if you like details, that's where they'll be. Um, we have reports over 150 pages. Um, but if you want to look specifically at what we did on the um, alignment of partners and looking at the distribution of which partners are contributing and what are they contributing and how does that align with us? How is it different? Um, I highlighted here which report you're going to want to go and find and what section to look in. Um, but, you know, when you're up late at night, um, then, and you need something to read, that's where you should go. So I think that sums up what we had prepared for you all today. So now we're interested to hear what you think and what questions you have or uh, what you're excited about or any of the above. So if you're welcome to come up to the uh, microphone or we have awesome Evelyn here who will take it around if anyone has questions. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I just had a question. Uh, well, I had, it's two questions in one. Uh, number one, like throughout your process, because it's a very robust process, um, and it's because it's part of the title, um, equity-centered. So how do you define that, and how are you able to operationalize that um, in a way that results in policy, environmental, and systems changes? I'll take a first stab at it, and then Dale can add to kind of some of the things, how we're building on it. So when we look at equity, we use kind of the definition of ensuring that everyone has the opportunity um, within their community. So when you look at obesity prevention, opportunity can mean many things. So opportunity to high quality food, uh, opportunity to physical activity. So it could be like any one of those supports that contribute to obesity prevention. So it's opportunity to a lot of things. Um, so when we look at that opportunity then, uh, we look at um, ensuring 
how does that get there? So that looks at, well, who are the partners? And then I will admit early, in the early days, we didn't do as much gathering community members feedback. But I, in the last two years, we have made more of an effort to have community members on our coalitions and boards. And so prior to that, it was primarily community partners. So people within the community that were living and working in the community coming together and looking at um, what opportunities they wanted for their community but we acknowledged we were missing some voices there. And so really took an effort at adding additional voices to make sure that everyone was being heard. And so that's kind of the model. And Dale's here. She's okay. gonna talk about uh, what, how they were, how that has uh, transpired in Lake County. Well, in Lake and McHenry. So basically, um, I think one of the nicest things is being a SNAP at educators, you get a call from one of your partners that asks you to help because they've identified an area that needs assistance and you kind of work with your partners, but you also go out to the communities and you listen, you hear what people are, need, you talk to the teachers if they need a backpack program in their school. You kind of work with those communities that you know for sure meet the criteria for SNAP at NWIC. You hang out at food pantries. Um, you just kind of get embedded into the community. And I think recently I've had the opportunity of doing listening sessions and just hearing from residents what their needs are. You know, that they can't find affordable housing, that they can't find jobs. And then to be able to work with the local um, key officials the, the township supervisors, the um, board of tr their trustees in, in the community, just working with them to bring some equity um, to their residents or to share with them what needs to happen. Did we answer your question? Can I, can I add one thing, Dale, if that's okay? Sure. Uh, I wanted to share just in Lake County <laughs> how some of that transformation has happened just over uh, in this current cycle of their implementation plan. So we uh, have action teams that have formed mm -hmm. around several topics, uh, health priorities in, in Lake County now. But one of the transformations that has been really remarkable to see is how we are being extremely mindful mm -hmm. of how we can make the action teams friendly and inclusive and welcoming to community members. Um, some examples of that that we implemented just this past week um, is for the very first time we added, uh, and these are our many, in many cases, virtual meetings because that's really large coalitions or large action teams are often virtual. We've added sign language interpretation and Spanish interpretation in those meetings. Then we actually heard several of the members come forward to say, oh, you know, this is the first time I really followed everything that was going on um, who were hard of hearing or limited hearing or deaf. And we, uh, many of those who were hard of hearing, we didn't even realize that that was, uh, that was keeping them out of the conversation. So those were, you know, just little things like setting up an orientation time ahead of time to welcome a new member, a new community member into the action team to tell them, here's what we're doing, here's the... Here's what we're doing. Here's what 
uh, how far we've uh, gotten along in our work together. Um, here's who these people are. Here's who's represented. So that they're, they're brought in with a friend. They're brought in with somebody who's a mentor who can kind of take them into the action team and um, they're not feeling like, oh, who is this? What are they saying? And then the final thing is we have really been now adjusting our language that we use. As you know, in this field, it's the land of acronyms. In, you know, in healthcare, in health education, so it, everything has an acronym. And so, you know, it's an acronym-free zone. We have handouts that have the acronyms on them. Um, we are using, trying to change our language to be much more user-friendly in both print and as we speak. Because when you bring community members in and you start talking about technical things and technical changes, you know, they may come for one meeting, but they're, they're not gonna come back again. And so really being mindful about the little things make a big difference to invite and keep community, community members who you really need not only at the table, but to be driving this work um, to keep them involved. And we're very fortunate, too, with the coalition that we have in Lake County, that one of the foundations um, paid for Collective Impact to come in and do a series of workshops. So if anyone's familiar with that Collective Impact information, it really does bring everybody at the grassroots. And so everybody's been talking about it. The coalition's gone from like 30 to 68. Janie can correct me, I'm not sure what the current number was this last week, but it's really trying to bring everyone in. And, and the other thing about that fund too, that's another change that happened this cycle. We have a fund called the Together Lake County Fund. So now the, mem the community members who spend their time in our coalition meetings mm -hmm. or steering committees are paid. They are paid an hourly rate to participate out of our fund because their time is just as valuable as our time that are, and we're getting you know we're getting paid to sit there as part of our job but they're taking time away from their family their their volunteer or their own jobs to participate in those meetings and so that's another value that has changed is to make sure that those community members actually that we put together a process and um, the fund is held by a local local community foundation, and they have a process to get reimbursed for their time. There was a second part to it, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, <sorry. laughs> if we can answer any more, just let us know, because we really get excited about getting into those communities and working with them, and making sure that we're hitting all demographics that fit that you know, snap at audience. So thank you. Were there any other questions? We have three minutes. We can do this. Are you uh, <laughs> I, know, I know you wanted to skip part four, but oh. you know, at your it's okay, but could you just touch a little bit on the ROI data that you found? I can talk a little bit about that. So, um, if you looked at the um, if you looked at the infographic, the back page is all the summary of the ROI, um, and basically we took um, the different components of the program: direct education, social marketing, um, PSE, 
and where there was existing literature um, linking um, outcomes to those components with a dollar return. Um, our lovely um, co colleagues with Alterum um, put together a hypothetical model for us um, that took our program data um, and merged with existing literature and um, put those back out. So basically, um, we took those components and then modeled them through to their impact on decreasing healthcare costs, decreasing morbidity, increasing life expectancy, and um, improved education and employment. And so that's where the, um, the dollars come from. That's like taking a very large thing and <laughs> Saying it quickly. Do you want to tell them the number? Oh, okay, yeah. Oh, sure, I can tell you the number. So, um, so when you do this, um, we you model it on two different time points. So that's basic, yeah, so it's basically for every dollar spent, um, the return is between $5.36 up to $9.54 um, based off of the longevity of those improvements. So. There you go. <laughs> All right, okay, works. we're right at time. If you have any other questions, please come up, um, email us, whatever. And thank you so much for coming. Hopefully you enjoyed the session.